Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Hey there, Blockhead listeners. Welcome to a very special episode of the podcast. Today we have not one, but two guests on the show, and very special guests indeed. Khalid Birdsong of Little Fried Chicken and Sushi on GoComics.com, and Ray Billingsley, of course, of the syndicated comic strip Curtis, and one of this podcast's very, very favorite comic strips out in the world today. This is a very unique and special episode indeed. We've come together to talk about comics, of course, and that means Curtis and Little Fried Chicken and Sushi, and also the experience of black cartoonists in a medium wherein their voices have historically been marginalized. But we've also come together to talk about the events of the last few weeks, specifically the murder of George Floyd and the eruption of protests across the globe in the weeks since. This feels like an historic moment in which we've perhaps, hopefully, turned a corner in the struggle for change. Ray, Khalid, and I have a frank discussion about these events, about racism, about the world we live in, as well as comics and how cartoonists respond to the issues of the day. So, without further ado, Ray Billingsley, Khalid Birdsong, and myself in conversation. It's great to actually really connect here. Thank you, Jeff. It's been quite a while for uh, Khalid and I. Yep. So, uh, oh. This is the first time I'm hearing his voice. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's like I've, I've heard Ray on, on interviews and, of course, on Blockhead. So it's, yeah, this is exciting. Well, it's great for me, too. I'm so excited. And, and it's so cool. I didn't know you guys knew each other. And it's just cool that it worked out that way. And it's great to be able to, you know, bring you together, I guess, virtually anyway, uh, to talk well, to Jeff, Jeff, you know the old stereotype, right? <laughs> Black, <laughs> we, all know, we all know each other. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I didn't really uh, have any idea. So this is great. And, uh, and what's even cooler, I guess, Khalid mentioned that he had written you a letter years and years ago when yeah. he first started out that's right well you know actually it was in high school where uh you know i just it was it was my mother who always kind of encouraged uh communicating and everything and she and when i was reading curtis in the paper and, and you know i mean that was that was it having a, a black male character uh, in a comic strip and it was so exciting and she was like oh you should just just write him just write him and 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 yeah, ask him for advice and and of course <laughs> as a teenager I think I was maybe in 10th grade or something and I was like oh it's no way he's gonna write back and so okay I'll I'll do it and he did and 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 then gave me a, a signed uh, sketch of Curtis and signed it and and everything and I still have that uh, that signed sketch um, up in my studio I framed it and it's just inspiring, and and then later I learned that that's what Ray does for a lot of great cartoonists, and so I 
yeah, I'm just very thankful for everything you've done, Ray. And yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for that. Also, thank you for making me feel old. <laughs> Back in high school, huh? Uh, hopefully, you just left high school a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's that's it. That's right. That's right. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, last, you know last year. I've never been the type not to answer people, and I know that's actually a bad thing uh, of a lot of people. Uh, you should want to inspire other people or just say hello. Uh, I already understand that a, a lot of people just to write me, they're feeling nervous. Right. So uh, the last thing I want to do is disappoint them. You know, that's just the sort of person I am. I, I'm already um, behind in a lot of fan letters and all, but I'll, I'll get to them. Uh, I like to do it all personally. I just can't understand people who never return uh, a reader's letters. I just don't get it. Right. That's a hallmark of of your work and your attitude towards the work in general, right, Ray? I mean, you do everything yourself. It's not right. like you're relying on assistants to do. You right. don't have a, an administrative assistant answering your fan mail. No, none at all. None at all. I, I think, actually, I'm a little bit too eccentric to work with because I, I can't just get up and say, okay, 9 o'clock, it's, it's time to work. It doesn't work that way. I might start work at two o'clock in the morning and go on till five, take a nap, get up at eight, do it all, you know, do some more of it. Uh, the, the art and whatever I do related to art, it has to speak to me. It hits me when it hits me. Oh, that's, that's amazing that you can, you can do that. And, and it's good to know the, the process because I always wonder about that with cartoonists, you know, for me, it's the early morning. And so, uh, you know, I have a, a family and it's just finding the time right now uh, can be hard. I used to be the late night guy that would stay up and do something similar to you. But once I had a kid, it was kind of like, you know, it's easier for me to get up and and then I'm fresh in the morning. And so I'm usually up around 430 or five and I put in my my time for for art and cartooning. And I just kind of have to make it happen. You know, sometimes that means looking at comics or or reading other comic strips, uh, whatever it is. Sometimes it's just staring at the wall, but, you know. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I just kind of get into that and use the and use the time. And, yeah, and it's great. And then when I'm done, uh, the rest of the day, I'm kind of on a natural high because, hey, I got my, my comic strip done or I did some writing for this. And, and right. so it's, it's <laughs> work right now, but who knows how it may change in the future. Once he becomes uh, an em empty nester, uh, everything <laughs> will change. Yeah, I, I bet. I had uh, three kids around. They're all grown and they're all with their own families and they're out of state. So basically, I am an empty nester. And I mean, I can do that. That's why it gives me the freedom to do uh, this stuff when I want to. I, in the earlier years, yeah, I had a real schedule to deal with uh, yeah. going to PTA meetings, all that stuff. I did the whole parent thing. And uh, I raised actually my kids alone. So, you know, it was just me and the strip. Really? Uh, huh. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was a tough road. I've, I've been down a lot of tough roads doing these comic strips. Wow, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, I, uh, we didn't talk about your family really that much, Ray, the last time we, you were on. And uh, so it's really interesting to hear that. Um, it certainly does make a difference in, in you know, your ability to work whenever you want to work. Um, I just read Khalid's blog post about and it was interesting because, uh, you know, there's a kind of disciplined approach that you put forth in that blog post, Khalid, about, you know, getting up in the morning and getting something done. And I kind of responded to that because um, I work pretty much I'm a morning person. So I work pretty much in the morning also, although you're on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast. And for me, morning is like six, seven o'clock. And I noticed you were like active on Instagram at like, I don't know. when. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, this guy is up like he's up at the crack of dawn or before. Yeah, it's it's really great. Now I have to tell you one of the things uh, about children and all that. Uh, first of all, my kids don't really care much for what I do. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's just plain normal. So uh, they went through the stage where it was sort of embarrassing for them, and it's only like my my middle son now who uh, is sort of interested in cartooning. The, the oldest one, and I have a daughter who is interested in writing. So I'm trying to help her put together a little book. Actually, a serious dramatic book. But uh, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's been different with these, these three kids. They're just very different people. And I know they like to be extremely private. And they know how I live my life uh, most of my life I've been doing some interview or something like that, so I've been very public. And uh, the family life, uh, I just sort of keep more private. Do you think that um, being a cartoonist, did it help with raising kids? And if you were raising them on your own, did it give you the flexibility to kind of do all of that? Or, or did, you, did you think well, it made it harder? Or Let me tell you this one thing. By being uh, like a stay-at-home father, uh, they really didn't get into much trouble. Hmm. Uh, none of them did drugs because, I mean, I'm always home. So uh, it's not like they were able to sneak off and come back and me not notice and, you know, punish them if they did anything wrong. Like I said, I went to PTA meetings. And, you know, most times when you're a kid, the last person you wanted to see at your school was your father. You know, <laughs> That's you, right. You could deal with your mother going, but not your father. <laughs> All right. So pretty much... Uh, they stayed in line and they, they gave me the room. Uh, we, we had our dinners every night, you know, so it, it was regular family stuff. But uh, after that, I would, you know, just dive back into my work. And they knew. They knew I was working. So uh, they would always give me that space. Right. Ray, you, you've always been, I mean, through most of your adult life then, you've been a syndicated cartoonist. And that's been your sole occupation, correct? Right. Is that, right. Is that correct? And Khalid, are you uh, you're working right now as well as being a cartoonist, right? You're you're are you teaching? I do a combination of things. Yeah, most of my career has been uh, in either kind of freelance illustration, education, you know, art teaching, and just kind of making comics comics independently. And so yeah, that's what I'm doing. And I also kind of do some writing, blog writing, business writing, that sort of thing. Right now I'm kind of going back into the the teaching side and, and art teaching and, and yeah, making my comics. I mean, teaching, as you know, Jeff, I mean, it's really great for if you have something on the side that you enjoy 
doing because usually you get the summers and that's when I do a lot of my cartooning and and serious work there and even the hours you know like I have pretty decent hours and I have kind of set vacations that I know are going to come up and like okay this is this is spring break so now I'm going to get this many comic strips done and try to get a buffer and that sort of thing so it is good for that and so most of my career yeah has been a kind of a combination of all of those uh-huh and and so you know it's there's a lot of pressure that comes with that too i mean you you've you've been posting uh now not every day like ray posts you know has to as a syndicated strip has to be up every day but um still you've got a deadline that you give yourself so it's it's combining that with the teaching can be difficult one of the things i was going to uh, point out is that's kind of interesting is and it's not true of a lot of the strips that i've been reading a lot of strips um, sort of haven't been dealing with the coronavirus, but both of you guys have have dealt with it pretty straightforwardly in the in the last couple of months, and uh, and what people have had to go through was that challenging? Well, it must have been challenging because you were working pretty much as everything was unfolding. You you didn't have much of a, a much leeway in terms of of time. Now I I know. In my case, uh, what makes it really rough is this uh, deadline schedule. We have to stay weeks ahead. Yeah. So I, I can't really respond to things right away as I want to. And I have to actually weave them into a script sort of naturally. I don't want it to look like I've taken a sudden curve mm. then naturally. So um, I think uh, with me, the, the coronavirus was, was going on for a couple of weeks before I actually had a chance to get into it. And uh, then I just, just got deeper and deeper. And, it, you know, it's a subject that I just couldn't pass up. Uh, it was affecting so many people, I, I just couldn't let it go past. And it, it's not to say that every cartoonist has to do it, because their mind has to be geared for doing topical uh Topical subjects, you know, you get a lot of strips that, you know, they they just do gags and that's it. But uh, Curtis wasn't one of those type of strips. I, I like doing uh, topical situation uh, uh, sort of story arcs. It 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 actually it makes me work harder as a writer. And it is one of the things that's remarkable about Curtis. It's both, you know, there there are times when it is kind of a kid gag strip. And then there are times when it really touches on real world issues like the coronavirus. And that, I think that makes it unique. I was lucky because of the, the syndicate let me do just about anything I want. And see, that's, that's not often the case. If, if you're sold for doing one thing, they sort of want to keep you at that. But mm. uh, I had told them years ago when I first came on, this is how my mind went. Uh, I mean, after so many years of, of doing strips and freelancing and all that stuff, my mind isn't geared to just one thing. It it bounces around. It experiments. So uh, I, at least they gave me uh, the opportunity to do that. That's great. That's amazing. You know, I uh, made a decision a few years ago to actually start talking about any you know, things that are going on in the world for a while there, especially with fried chicken and sushi, I really wanted to keep it kind of in its own world, timeless, and not really comment on anything. And and then I said, you know, well, let me kind of try something different. And yeah, I just started 
uh, trying to comment, even if it's not direct. I said, well, can I be clever with it? Can I hint at something and and not really address it directly, but everyone knows what I'm talking about? And so this, uh, even though it's been really hard with the coronavirus, with everything going on, you know, just internationally and the fact that it was a big deal in Japan where the family lives, I thought this is a good opportunity to kind of talk about this and keep the family at home. And I think it's really worked out pretty well. How, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm not actually all that familiar with how it impacted Japan in, and how it was dealt with in Japan. Was there a lockdown in the same way there was in the United States or did they take a, a you know, a, a more a stricter attitude towards it? Um, did they control it, uh, you, you know, more successfully than, than we have here in the United States or you know, they have, uh, I guess it was, a. uh, I don't know if you'd say a lockdown for work. As far as people, you know, you try to keep people inside and not really go out much and everyone everyone wears a mask. But as far as completely closing all of businesses and doing that, they didn't really do that. I think it was hard. The economy just wouldn't be able to take it in Japan. So they did close the schools down. Mm-hmm. They closed, closed the schools down for, uh, I don't know if it was a month or two, but their schools are back, back open and kids are going. But I think that... There, you know, in Asia, it's it, it, people are more accustomed to wearing masks and going out if they're sick or just as a courtesy. You know, you wear a mask to kind of not spread your germs to someone else. Maybe you're riding on trains or you're, you know, in close proximity to everyone. And so you're careful here in America. It's kind of a relatively new thing. So it just I think wearing masks is something that everyone can easily get into and do. But but yeah, it's been it's been hard. I think things are getting better over there now and they're slowly coming back to life. But, but yeah, a lot of people, some businesses, you, you could stay home and some you had to come in. It was, it was not a, a solid 100% lockdown. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting uh, to think of. I know that in, I mean, at least from what I've read uh, in, in China and in, in Korea, in particular in Korea, there, there was a fairly disciplined approach to lockdown and they seem to have gotten a handle on it. But I, I you know, I ha- I'm not current with what's going on right now exactly and whether there's been spikes or or not but um you know this issue raises the question uh and and it sort of precipitates our meeting here today in in a way and that is that curtis deals with some real life issues khalid your strip is now dealing with coronavirus in a way and although your family is is located in japan uh, I think the you know the issues we're going through right now with Black Lives Matter and and the death of uh, the murder of George Floyd and the aftermath and the response to that is that something that you guys feel that you're going to be dealing with in your comics uh, in the next you know in the near future. Khalid, you want to do that first? Sure. Um, you know I think that I I want to talk about things that are going on, but I already kind of do that in some (laughs) ways, uh, just at a distance. And uh, I actually reposted a a comic strip about that, uh, where the teacher at school in Japan is kind of asking, what do you think about America, kids? What do you think of when, because Japan is known for this, and what do you think? And then they're like, oh, Hollywood is America, and oh, fancy cars. And then Carl, the, you know, black kid is like, racism. And, you know, it's just that sometimes (laughs) I... I bring those things up, uh, and so I've done that kind of throughout the, the the strip. So I'll talk about it a little, but I don't know how deep I'm going to go yet. It just kind of depends. I, I'm definitely going to bring up certain 
certain points, but I'm just not sure how. And that's what's kind of exciting about cartooning is like, well, I, I have to say something. And I don't know, you know, they're they're in Japan. And so I how is that going to affect them? And and so I'm not sure how it's going to weave in there, but trust me, it will show up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in my case, uh, Curtis, you know, lives in the city here in the U.S., in, in right. any city, might say, any big city, uh, Detroit, Philly, New York. And uh, although I've really wanted to say things about policemen, I've sort of held back from doing it. Uh, there's another uh, cartoonist by the name of Rob Armstrong, who does oh, a yep. strip called Jumpstart. And yep. his is about a policeman. And see, it's sort of like a, a unwritten law among us cartoonists to not like dwell on each other's you know topics. I, I actually count on him to make more statements about the policeman. And um, a, a main reason why I don't do things about police, because I, I did live in New York uh, for a number of years, and I had a lot of personal problems with them. Mm. So um, I've, I've sort of strayed away from doing them because I don't want to sound uh, vindictive or, or angry at them. Uh, I've had a couple of, of, of shakedowns with policemen, and, you know, it, it really wasn't a good time. And as a matter of fact, I mean, you know, in some sense, the post you put up on Instagram about one of those experiences precipitated this this getting together here today because you talked quite frankly about being stopped on your way up to visit your mom right and there was no reason there was right. no reason for it um i i happened to be i remember very well i was living on 79th street uh, between first and second avenue which is supposed to be sort of a, a quiet area you know a little well to do uh I went there because I needed the peace and quiet. I didn't want people to bother me. And it being New York, I didn't have a car. So, uh, and, and, and I didn't ride the subway. Being over on the east side, the, the subway really isn't that great. So I would always hire a car. And uh, I got to the point where I would get the same car and the same driver. And he knew where I was going. I, I was headed uptown to see my mother. And uh, this one time, an unmarked car pulled us over. And, you know, these three guys jumped out. And I was with a friend of mine. We were both going up. And um, all of a sudden, um, my driver, he got really scared. And, you know, he pulled over. These guys get out, and they say, put your hands on the car. Spread them. And I said, no. And he said, put your hands on the car. And I yelled at him. I said, no. Oh. And I said, I know who you are. You have no badges. You haven't identified yourself. You know, I, I have no idea who you are. You might be three guys just wanting to seal us up. <laughs> so I looked over towards my buddy, and he was already spread out on the car. And I refused to do it. So uh, they started asking me for ID, and I gave them my wallet. And they, one guy started fumbling through it. The other guy was up in my face, just breathing hard as if he wanted to do something. And uh, one of the guys read my name out on my ID. And he said, Ray Billingsley, where, Ray Billingsley, where do I know that name from? And I said, you must like cartoons. And he said, oh, yeah, you're the guy to draw Curtis. You draw Curtis. 
They um, actually asked me if Curtis and Michelle was going to get. <laughs> I, I said, you got to be kidding me. You, you have to be kidding me. You stopped me like this, and now you're talking like a fan? Oh, my God. So, um, because of that, uh, they let us go. It, it de-escalated just like that. And, I mean, there was one of the cops that was up in my face. He looked like he wanted to go to blows. I mean, he, he was actually just puffing and blowing right in my face. And see, I'm from Harlem, too. I'm not really that quick to back down. Mm -hmm. uh, which is why I was yelling at him, I won't do it. I won't do it. There was no reason to. You, oh, and, and I do study things like the law. I, I don't just do cartoons. I do a lot of reading, so I know what my rights were. And you can't just stop someone because of no reason. You, you've <laughs> got to have a reason to stop them. And they gave us nothing. Mm. So um, uh, I told them, have a nice day. And we drove off. And my driver, he was shaking. He, he had told me um, he had never seen anyone do that before. And the guy just had sweat rolling down because... Uh, he was so scared. That's how nervous they made him that quickly. Oh, man. But it's, see, that, that's the reason why I don't really have police in the strip at all. I think throughout Curtis's run, uh, I don't think I've drawn the police not once. I don't recall seeing police in yeah. Yeah, uh, okay. at all. Yeah, which is interesting. How would you deal with them if you if you were to introduce them in the strip? Um, you know, the reality of it is is really so terrible and so frightening. And uh, I mean, from my from my position as a white guy, I can't possibly understand what you go through when you interact with the police. I mean, I don't like interacting with the police, but I know that I'm not going to be tasered. I'm not going to be knocked on, uh, on the ground senseless. I, I, that experience is not going to happen to me. And, um, you know, I can't imagine how one grapples with that every time you know, one leaves the house or when one has children and, you know, you're raising your child and, and you don't know what's going to happen to them when they, they walk out of the door because, you know, two guys in a, in a truck are going to chase them down when they're going for a jog or something, you know, it, you're right about that. My, my middle son, uh, he called me one time. Um, he was outside. He, he said, dad, I just had a run in with the cops. And I, I said, I, I hope you did what I told you to, and, and you're polite. You just go ahead with what's happening. And he said that they had a little argument, some words, and he spit on his car. And I said, man, mm. do not do that. Do not, not do that. Do just, mm. just answer their questions. You know, if you're not doing anything, most likely they'll just let you go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thank goodness it didn't go any further than that. But, you know. Yeah, my my kids were also, you know, subject to that sort of thing. My my oldest boy, he's sort of a homebody. So he just went to school. He came home. Uh, he he had little friends, so I didn't really worry about him. Uh, the middle boy, he was outgoing, outgoing and very social. So he's the one I had to worry about more. Yeah, it's good to hear that, uh, Ray, because I, I can totally relate that idea of you know, you, you go out and you have to be very, very careful. And then the times that I've been pulled over by the police, you know, it's a lot of, okay, just being careful, being polite, but also telling them what 
you're doing, speaking and communicating, you know, it's like my hands, I put my hands on the steering wheel, 10 and 2, and then if I go and get my license and registration, I tell them as I'm going into the glove compartment to get my license and registration, and then you're just careful with it all. And so it can be it can be scary, but it's just that whole thing of of realizing that I'm going to do everything I can to make this as peaceful and safe as possible. But you still never know. Well, and that's that seems to be the the case, even when, you know, I I was listening to Keith Knight do a a talk last night at the Billy Ireland Museum. There was a (laughs) virtual uh, discussion around these issues and his work as a cartoonist and he's a uh, great work yeah. yeah me too he's just fantastic and you know it, it comes to mind is you know among the things that among the things that white people will say you know when they respond to to these things they read about these stories you know if you just act this way the cops will lead you leave you alone and that is just not always the case i mean you know if you follow these protocols right the cops right. Will, will behave a certain way. Well, you look at the what happened to Philando Castile or, you know, Breonna Taylor or, or people right. who, were, who were not doing anything. And, and Philando Castile was, was trying to, he was trying to talk to the police officer and say, look, you know, this is the situation. And it didn't matter. Brianna was asleep. She was asleep. She was asleep. Oh. Oh. There, there was a little boy, 12 years old, playing with a, a, a water gun. And he got gunned down. Oh. Yes. There's one story, one terrible story after another. You know, uh, Iana Jones um, was a seven-year-old child. The police were raiding the apartment for one reason or another. And, you know, a seven-year-old child is hit by a stray bullet mm-hmm. and in her grandmother's arms. And right. I mean, it's right. one terrible story after another. And in some sense, it, it doesn't matter in these circumstances, it doesn't matter whether you are, you know, following the protocols or, or trying to not, not to anger the police or whatever. I mean, George Floyd, I mean, this is one of the things that kills me, you know, and I think everybody responded to when you watch that terrible, terrible video of George Floyd's death. Yes. Uh, George Floyd was not resisting arrest. George yes. Floyd, not, knew, at all. not at all. And, you know, when I, his words echo in my head, over and over again, and I'm certain that this is true for everybody who's seen that that video. Yep. It, it, you know, he 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 knew. I mean, he knew his life was in the balance. He knew that, and and any you know any black person who's encountering the police in that circumstance, you know, you just don't know how it's going to go. And 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 when you look at that video of George Floyd, it's so apparent that he knew his life was in the balance and but, but don't you know that's why he cried out for his mother yeah mm, yeah exactly most yeah. black men anyway if, if something terrible is going on first person we call on is our mother our mother is our most nurturing thing if, that's if right. it's getting worse than that next name you'll hear out of our mouth is jesus yeah that's right that's okay. true that's but, true but mom, mom comes first and then to find out that his mother was dead for a couple of years prior, mm, he, yeah. he knew things, you know, weren't going to turn out well. Mm-mm, mm-mm, he and did. The, the bad thing about these experiences, when we saw uh, Rodney King get beat up and it was on camera, you mm-hmm. thought there'd be some sort of change. Mm-hmm. Now they don't even care. They look at the camera 
while they're doing it. And it's no problem. They, they still continue on with this, this behavior. And that that is true. You know, it seems like so so many of these instances that have been videoed by uh, passersby or those people beside, you know, they're videoing the cops in in these actions, and and it they continue without concern and without the sense that there's any ramifications for what they're doing. And and I think that is another thing about the George Floyd video that is just so shocking. You know, is that that police officer with his knee on his neck was impassive there was no emotion whatsoever on that man's face right. at all right. and there were people you know and and as you watch it you you become one of those people those standers by uh you know completing with him to take his knee off george floyd's neck and he just does not respond at all right right, right. do you see also even with um the uniformed policemen that have the helmets on, wearing all black. These guys almost look like Darth Vader's arms. Yeah, they, they do, they do. can't see their faces, which makes them all the more threatening. You know, if you can't see a person's face and they're wearing all black, it's disturbing. When I see them standing in a line and they're all holding their batons, it's downright spooky. Now, yeah. I happen to go down to one of the marches uh, here in New York, because I, I just wanted to be a part of it. I just wanted to see what it was like. And it was very peaceful. Um, once again, talking about age, I think I was one of the older people <laughs> who was in my area because they were all kids. And uh, after a while, I had to stop walking and go back home. I couldn't take all the walking. But um, I did see policemen, and they did not speak. They didn't do anything. It, it was like looking at uh, wooden soldiers. There is that that kind of impassive, emotionless quality to these kind of SWAT teams or these riot police, uh, and until they start pushing forward, like they did in Washington, you know, in Lafayette Square, right? Uh, that whole thing, and and or the guy in Buffalo or whatever, you just see these guys attacking. You know, once they get moving. That's when all hell breaks loose. And, right. You it's know, like locusts. Yeah. And uh, it's it's just, it, it, it's unbelievable, you know. I mean, this whole, the whole call for defund the police, people on the right are taking that and and utilizing it as, a, as, you know, just pointing to an idea about extremism, but that's not what it means. What it means is defund the police in the way we've defunded education and all these other things and, and reallocate the funds. But it also means let's take away the riot gear, the military equipment, because how did we get that attitude that the police who are supposed to be the servants of the public right. are all of a sudden exactly. this armed militia that that are supposed to quarantine and and corral people and and um impose force upon them in in a militaristic way it's just well, it's well a, this 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 leads to the argument Jeff of of uh, what their stance was for years and years Mm-hmm. Now, my my family is from the South, and we were told at a very young age not to go to the police. Uh, so once we were in New York, it was the same thing. If you have problems, don't go to the police. Because the police, as, as history shows, has never been on the black person's side, never. 
Who were the ones that put the hoses on us? Not Ma and Pa Kettle. It was they were cops. Yeah. So, so this is the way it's been for black folk all the time. Uh, you you get those stray ones that walk the beat and they got to know the kids and the you know the neighbors and all that. They would go and talk. But uh, I know uh, I've never seen one. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen one of them. Mm-hmm. It's it, yeah. It, you know, Keith Knight was saying last night. Uh, one of the things he pointed out was um, that the police, as we know them, derived from poor people who were hired by rich people in the South after slavery ended, or actually during slavery, to, to chase down um, runaway slaves. And right. the police grew out of this idea and he was making the the connection between the the word officer and overseer and uh, that was something again that's missing from my education you know let me let me speak to that because Mm -hmm. i mean you know kind of continuing on what ray was was saying i mean yeah this is this is nothing nothing new and even for for me uh you know i have a friend who was shot and killed by the police and it was mistaken, mistaken identity. Uh, you know, they thought he was a drug dealer who fit the description and followed him. And, you know, we don't know what really happened. We just know what they said that he tried to attack them or something like that. And, but I'm sure that wasn't true. I mean, he's a friend, college educated brother and, and never would do anything like that. And the only thing is this was 15 years ago. 15 years ago before we had, you know, social media and all of this to, right. to put it out there and right. and talk about it and film it and, and everything like that. And it was it was so crazy because, you know, you hear about these things happening and I was raised uh, to be careful. But then something like that happening is, is hard. And so so I, I told my, my father about it. And, you know, of course, he was, you know, I'm so sorry, son. I mean, I know this is hard. And then he said but welcome to being a black man in America, son. Mm. And, you know, I got chills up and down my spine and it was kind of, I know it was hard for him to say, but it was what I needed to hear of like, this is, this is a part of it. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's just so, so this is, this is not a new thing. And so I just, yeah, seeing this go on is, yeah, this is, this is what it is. We all actually have to grow up under this sort of rule. All of us know it. Uh, I, I think only Michael Jackson and his brothers probably didn't know it, but just yeah. about every other black person had to deal with them in some sort of fashion. That's right. And it, it's a sad statement, but um, we've done all these marching. Uh, we've, we've gone into higher education. We're judges. We're on you know, the Senate. We're governors, all that. And still, very little has changed. And and you're absolutely right, and we see the evidence of it every day and all around us. And and w- I guess two questions come to mind. You know, the first is just one of plain ignorance on my part. But so why do you think these things? Even though, as you were pointing out, Ray, 
African Americans have become members of the judiciary and and law enforcement and 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 the Senate and the Congress and all of that, and yet things don't change and they haven't changed. And and then the and why is that? And then the the second question is, do you feel like this is? I mean, some people are saying that this is a moment where it feels different. Is and 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 I know the fear. And I have this fear too: is that, is that after this quiets down, after the the protests start to mellow out a little bit over time, it, it, things will just settle back into the way they've been, and legislation or whatever may be proposed, but nothing will come of it. But does this feel different um, at this moment to either of you? Oh, I don't well, know. I'm, yeah. I, I, I for one, I'm a little bit afraid. Um, just as you say, I, I'm hoping it doesn't go back, but man as a species seems to be creatures of habit mm-hmm. and it's not like they'll let up on this. You know, it, it just almost feels like it'll rebound and go right back to it. But, um, I, I can remember, um, all the marching, uh, during the Vietnam war. And this sort of reminds me of the same thing, you know, they were very passionate and they fought the police and they fought against the system and all that, but yet very little change. The, the outcome wasn't a worldwide change. This feels different because it really struck the hearts of people. Just hearing that man scream and cry did a number on people. That was very much different. But um, I, I'm not sure. I, and, and I actually think one of the main things that keeps the police apart from other people is basically the images that are always flashed in front of us. Those of the hard-edged black person, you know, um, they're afraid of rappers, even though a, a whole lot of rappers are, are nice guys. They're, it, what they're doing is an image, but they're the type that, you know, if you grab them, they may start crying. But the police don't know that. They see the guys with gold teeth and dreads and all that, and they think that they're really terrible people. Right. And I can imagine that being a policeman has to be a, a job that you are almost afraid to do because you don't know whether or not you're coming out of it or not. So I, I think, for one, they just attack before anyone else can. You know, it, it's not like on TV where they shoot to hurt you or they wait until the, the other people shoot, shoot first. They go ahead and they do it first, and, and that's where the d- disaster comes in. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think a lot of that is, yeah, it comes from that fear and, and that needing to control. Uh, yeah, a lot of that is, is where it is, or just not knowing what to do or what's going to happen, but that, that fear is, is strong. And then, yeah, this idea of, of change, you know, I hope that there will be changes. I think there may be some, some policy changes. There may be maybe some things that happen, but... Do I think that it's the end of racism in America? No. Do I think that, you know, all the problems uh, with the police departments and, and cops that, you know, uh, that go on will totally end? No. But I, I really hope that we can make a big step from this. Now, do you remember when Obama was elected president, we thought the same thing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We said, wow, there's such great strides made. We'll never go back to, you know, the old days and all that. And it got worse. People seem to get more angry. 
uh, more revolutionary. Yes. They, they thought the world would crack in half because a black man had been elected. Then when they found out it didn't crack, they really went berserk. Right. And, and that brought us to where we are right now. The, yeah. the distrust of black people who, who haven't done anything. Yeah. You know, nothing at all. It astounds me every day when you look at the difference between this buffoon who occupies the White House now and, you know, Barack Obama, who, you know, is just the most, you know, I don't know. He's the greatest president of my lifetime. Eight, yeah. eight years, no scandal. Exactly. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. He was very articulate, which yep. I don't want to make that sound bad because. Right. We all are articulate, <laughs> okay? That's not yeah. like a special thing. Right. But, uh, he was able to actually give you hope. Yes. His yes. speeches made you feel hope. I don't know where the hate came in. It was probably in his name. But, yeah. I mean, if his name was Mark or, or David or something like that, it would have been no problem. If right. his name was Khalil, it would have mm. been the same thing. Yep, you know, that's right. They would, they would have been just as angry. Uh, Daquan, things like that, they'd be upset. But mm -hmm. if, if he was called Michael or Ralph or something, it might have been a whole different, you know, Ralph Jenkins, president. Okay, <laughs> you know, it's right. a black yeah. name. So mm -hmm. a lot of it goes into, into names, actually, with our people. I think the election of Barack Obama that you've been pointing out, Ray, you know, was surprising to a lot of us who felt that this was a watershed moment for the United States was the amount of hate that bubbled up after that, that, that it had been simming, simmering there and all along and expressed in different ways. But all of a sudden, it's just like rising to the top. And you see all of these, these people who have gathered around Trump uh, who are expressing this now openly and and um, in in a way that can only suggest you know I, I think is a is some kind of you know reaction to the election of Barack Obama and this renunciation this you know obsession that Trump has with with eliminating everything that Obama did uh, it seems to be it, it seems to be part of that and um, of course he, he ran his whole you know his whole political career started with the the idea of the birther you know movement right, right right yep I remember that yep you know and and he built his base upon that set of ideas and that all these people are out there just waiting for this guy to show up so that they could just spout their hatred you know openly uh, it, it, and you know it it just boggles the mind and it and the, one of the things about it is, is that, as you were pointing out, Khalid, you know, it's not the end of racism. And, and you look forward, you, you, you look at these guys and you think about they're, they're, they're still there in response to, you know, the, the tsunami of outcry around George Floyd. They're still there, these guys. Yeah, and they're yeah. still voicing their hate and they're doing it publicly and without shame. You know, I just saw this video of these these guys reenacting the death of George Floyd in Oh yes. Oh my I, God. I've seen that. I've seen a lot yeah, of that was... also different different uh, people, mostly youngsters. And and that's what's scary because the youngsters are supposed to be the one who will enact change. Yeah, yes. that was they, very scary. Oh. Doing this and it makes it it makes the whole thing scary. It makes it depressing, like, as if there's no hope. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, 
and oh. you know and on the other hand then we do have a worldwide outcry you know and 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 this is the the spark of hope that i feel anyway is is that there was a worldwide outcry and and it's you know because it's not just the united states it's every place and what? and all of these other countries are are hitting the streets and raising their arms in protest against police fire, uh, violence in the united states but everywhere and and racism in and you know the idea that black lives matter is become a worldwide phenomenon not just a phenomenon in the United States, but the momentum that it seems to have gives me some sense that we are hopefully on the cusp of some kind of change. But as you know, change doesn't happen without, obviously, without uh, struggle. And this is, that struggle, I guess, is, is going to continue because hate just doesn't die easily. Yeah, right. I hope. Yeah, I hope that uh, you know we were talking about the other side of young people and what they can do. But I, I hope that a lot of young people are seeing this and they are gonna take that and say, okay, I, as I grow, I'm gonna make a change, or I see that, okay, I really understand something about white privilege, or I understand what I can do to be an ally, or I'm going to make a difference. It's not going to be the same when I. Uh, you know, get into a professional career and into the world. So I, I hope that there will be uh, more people, more young people that will take that side and really make a change um, in the future. I, you know, I think they will. Yeah. But like I tell you, when I went down into New York, there were literally thousands of people and they were basically all young, which was great to see because mm -hmm. that is where, uh, if, if there's going to be any success for this in this United States, it's going to be because of the young people. That's right. Because mm -hmm. they're going to carry it forward. They'll carry it That's forward. That's right. They don't the have kids. the same hangups with race or or, or sexuality. Right. You know, all things like that. They see the other side of. They see the absurdity to it all. And I mean, they are. Uh, daring to march, they're daring to be arrested and, and, and tased and maced and all that, and they keep on going. So that shows hope. I really just hope that uh, those of them who are of voting age, that they do come out. Yeah, oh, I hope so too. That's yes, where I hope so. We always mess up. That's we right. Don't yeah. come out. There's some, you know, for them to say, oh, I don't like this person, so I'm not going to vote at all, that's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, just hoping that they will all come out. Yep. Well, and that's the thing. Yeah. Getting people to the ballot box. I know, you know, there's a lot of cynicism about the ballot box and what we can do with the ballot box, but we can see the, the, the consequences of not going to the ballot box in what's happening in the United States now. Right. You know, Trump right. and Barr and, and the Republican majority in the Senate. I mean, those are the consequences of what, what happens when we don't go. And so hopefully this will result in a momentum. Although, you know, we just saw yesterday uh, what happened in Georgia in regard oh, to, yes, the to voting. Right. Oh, my, yeah. right. Oh. my all God. All of a sudden, all the machines are broken. Mm, yeah. Right. Yep. In the black community. Yep. yep. Can't get them working. I mean, and 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 this whole outcry against you know mail-in voting or Stacey Abrams was saying her her absentee ballot was messed up so she couldn't use it and how many it's, people is that true? Trying, they're trying every trick that they can think of, and you know the bad thing about it is now they're not even being subtle about it. 
it it's straight up in your face, and then they tell you, "Oh no, it's not like that." Of course mm. it is. Of right. course it is. We're we're no fools. We see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just as you're saying, it's right up in your face. I mean, Trump's going to hold his first rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on Juneteenth, and you yeah. know. What does that tell you? You know, uh, yeah. I mean, is that just an accident? You know, I don't think so. Yeah, no way. And so there is there is this evil in the world. You know, there's this force in the world that wants to stoke division and and anger and violence. Uh, you know, this it's like a bad movie that we're actually living in. It really is. It, it feels yeah, like that. Yeah, you're waiting for the credits to roll, and you know they're not rolling. Every day you wake up is something different. It's yeah. it's mentally exhausting. It is. Um, I don't want to keep bringing them up, but it's just fresh on my mind. But Keith Knight was saying last night, just there is studies have been done of the survivors of uh, families of Auschwitz and and concentration camps, and and they note that there are there are greater risks of depression and and um, bad self image and and all kinds of ramifications, mental health issues that arise from, and just feelings of of worthlessness that come out of having been treated to that extreme kind of um, situation. And he said, imagine what 400 years of, of slavery mm. has done to a people. And, and, and this continues yet today, you know, trying to come to get through all of this. But exhaustion and being exhausted is, is the mildest of, of those, but it certainly has got to be pervasive. But, you know, people are talking about race. People are talking about what's going on. It's, it's uh, uncomfortable conversations. And I think that that is also important of just getting everyone to talk about this, talk about what's, what's hard about it. And the fact that, you know, a cartoonist like Keith Knight can get up and have a slideshow like this and people are attending and listening to what he's saying and, and believing him and, and really kind of taking it to heart and saying, wow, you know, like this is, there's something real to this, I think is, is also powerful right now that, okay, yeah, you know, I, you can't just kind of brush us off and say, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. No, no, this is real. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely. Yes. You know, it's, it, it's, and I'm, I'm embarrassed and ashamed to admit that, that I have not been paying attention as closely as I should have. And that the, my upbringing never black history was never something that was that was taught to me as a kid growing up it, it was it was marginalized um you know my experience of it is is obviously been late and second second hand you know and and it's the kind of thing where it it's Keith Knight was saying again last night, you know, that, that um, the change has to come in the in the white community. You know, it's like it's like there has to be a reckoning among white people that this has got to stop. You know, right. that that they've it's not the change in attitude and the change in is not a black problem. It's a white problem. You know, right. it's like white people have to there has to be a consciousness raising. This seems to be a moment of consciousness raising among white people. Yes, and, it does. You know, and hopefully the impact is profound enough that it will be transformative. You know, uh, I, you know, I hope that it is, you know, um, it shook me to my core. 
you know, what's been going on. Not, not just, you know, George Floyd, but everything that happened in the weeks prior to that, you know, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, uh, and, and then, you know, um, the, the young man's name, uh, the bird watcher in, uh, Central Park. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, all, yep. all of that hit all at once. And then George Floyd's death on top of that, it was just a tsunami of events that were inescapable. And yeah. You can't ignore them. That's true. Yeah. And Jeff, I got to tell you, those are the things that were reported. Yes. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. That's my point. Yeah. There's yep. a lot that isn't reported, which is why uh, we as blacks, we're almost numb to this because this is usual. This yeah, is yeah. normal. This, you don't uh, always hear about it. Uh, and, you know, here's the thing that I know Khalid could actually relate to. A lot of times when you're listening to the news, you, you know, you have it on in the background or something, or you might be with family or friends, you hear about something going down, some sort of robbery, a person got shot or something like that. First thing you think is, don't be black. Don't be black. Exactly. Don't be black. And it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, the first thing you think is, don't be black. Don't be black. Yep. And then if you find out it's black, you go, oh, man. Yeah, I do the same thing. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. it, if they're not black, you go, Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, yes. Okay. Back to the sweet potatoes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's so true. Oh, wow. But yeah, the, the major change, if it ever comes, has to be uh, with white folks. Uh, this is one thing that I really hate to bring up, and it's about the industry. Mm-hmm, yeah. And um, the, the fact of it is, I myself have been trying to get some sort of animated deal for Curtis for like 20 years. And I mean, I've done storyboards. I've thought up the stories, everything and no takers nowhere. And, uh, I, I have heard so many different ways of saying, no, I can make a book out of it. All sorts of excuses only to see new cartoons put out on the market that really aren't that good. Exactly. I'm pretty sure I could have given them a run for the money. But it's like, still with all that I've done in my track record, it's still like either they don't trust me or I still have to prove myself. And mind you, I'm trying to prove myself to people who haven't even been in the industry as long as I have. (laughs) It's just odd. It is odd. And I've always, I've followed kind of your journey on that, Ray, over the years. And even when you want to put out book collections of Curtis and how come, how come they're not, they're not uh, publishing your, your, your book collections. And I think at at one point I remember uh, you put out your own book collection just because I wanted to do it. And I made sure to, to, to buy one and, and try to give any kind of uh, advice that I could have, because it's so true that it's just like, why, why won't they, they do it? And so I don't know what that is. Uh, and I don't know if it is a black male child um, as, is not as relatable. I don't know if, it's, if, if it would be different if, if Curtis were a girl or if it's just that. It, I just don't know. I don't understand. I've had other cartoonists actually tell me, Ray, if you were drawing a white kid, you know, you'd be a lot further along. Uh, right. And I yeah. say, yes. Oh, here's a little story. When I first met uh, Maury Turner, uh, it was back in the 80s when I was doing my first strip, Looking Fine. Mm-hmm. And we had known of each other because we did cartoons for like Ebony Magazine. 
And when we met, we didn't even say anything. We walked towards each other with our arms outstretched. We hugged, and Maury started to cry. Oh. I learned that Maury was a crier. So, um, <laughs> he told me, Ray, if you really want to go anywhere in this business, either draw white children or animals. Hmm. And I said, Maury, you know, I can't do that. Uh, you know, I, I, I have to represent, man. <laughs> I have to do what feels right to me. He warned me of the, the trouble I was going to have. I was, I was young. I didn't think, um, I didn't think all these barriers would still be put up. I thought things were really changing. And to this day, they still really haven't changed. There's so many new venues to do things on. Thank God for the internet, because at least a lot of people who would have not had the privilege to be seen, now they are. That's right. They don't have to kiss up and, and try to win someone's approval. That's right, because there, there's so many institutional barriers. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about systemic racism. It, it exists in publishing. It exists in comics. It exists everywhere. But one of the things, you know, the Internet has done is it's it's opened the door to diversity of voices, which wasn't there, you know, Ray, when you and I were, were growing up, Maury Turner and... and um, and Ted Shearer were were two of the cartoonists you might see out there in syndication. But, you know, Ray Billingsley and and um, a Khalid Birdsong or a Tahid Bondia or, you know, uh, a Rob Armstrong or a variety of other uh, cartoonists. You know, it was a closed world. And um, the Internet's opened that up, just like um, cell phones have made it possible to videotape acts of violence that, that we were not able to see before. Right. right. Yeah. And also who were, was also excluded were the ladies. Mm -hmm. Right. At, yeah, at one sure. point, there were no women. Uh, even uh, Dale Messick, he had to use the name Dale, which is sort of like a man. Yeah. Uh, put out there. I, I have no idea why the system was like this. It's like an old man's club. Uh, well, old white boys club, really. Yeah. And, and that kind of breaking through that is still, you wouldn't think it would be that difficult this many years later, but, right. Right. but it is, you know, something that uh, pleasantly surprised me, uh, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got an email, you know, I'm on Go Comics and and I got an email from my editor and, you know, she was saying that we would, with everything going on, we want to uh, highlight uh, African-American, you know, black cartoonists on the homepage of the Go Comics site uh, where they usually are putting all the popular comics and the most famous ones and would you like to be a part of it? And I was completely in shock. I was impressed, and, and I thank them. And now on the Go Comics main page, you see, uh, you know, black black cartoonists and their strips up there that you can choose. And so that might seem like a small thing to someone that doesn't, uh, you know, know how it goes. For me, it just felt huge. Like they're doing this, and it's still up there every day. I go every day. I go and check. It's, it's, is it still there? Yeah. Oh wow, that it's still there. Wow. Okay, I don't know how long it's going to be there, but this is great. You know, that calls that calls for congratulations. Right. Yeah. But I know also in the back of your mind, you probably said it's about goddamn time. Yes, exactly. 
yes. that's exactly yes. that's exactly what I said. It's like it's 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 uh, <laughs> it's a long time, and it's also it's it's the right time. But yeah. I, I felt like wow, you know, like this is this is historical right here, and most people probably won't notice it. But for for cartoonists and people that are yeah that know, it's it's definitely a huge deal. Everything it, it all is a huge deal. Uh, we've become almost desensitized as a nation uh, not to really feel about, you know, very much unless it applies to us. But, right. you know, personally, each person personally, but it is a big deal. And uh, it'll always be a big deal. Just think a year from now when they've taken it down, it still had been up there. So, yes, it is a big deal. It, it's important, too, that that the audience who goes to the Go Comics page knows that there are African-American cartoonists there for them to explore and to broaden their horizons in terms of what they're reading. And, and in order to understand the world we live in a little bit. More. Yeah, and that's 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 true. And I mean, that was one of the things just with, you know, with Curtis kind of sticking with, OK, we're going to have a, a, a black kid as the main character i mean for me i just i always want to show black people doing things that maybe you don't see them doing or 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 maybe something different to kind of open your your mind and and that's why i have a black family living in japan where yeah. it's like, hey, you know, black people travel they can they go to other countries they live in other countries you know we do all kinds of things and <laughs> so to, and i've done that with every kind of comic and i might not get the attention, uh, it's also hard because it's also um, black people, but also Asians, because you have Japanese characters that are in there and you don't see many um, comic strips with Asians in them. And so I just feel like for representation, at least, at yeah. least it shows that and maybe it will show someone like, wow, this family's in Japan. They went all the way to Asia and this is something different and what's going on here. And just, you know, a, a black family that loves each other and, you know, and they're there for their, their kids and everything. And just seeing that is just normal. It's just yes, no right. normalizes, just normalizes all of this where it's like, this is, this is just a regular kind of black family living overseas that happened to have a, a magical raccoon that lives with them. But still yeah. It, yeah. it has, you know, like there's some normalization that I'm looking for with the strip. So I, I, I hope that more people will, yeah, will, uh, you know, be open to something like that. Well, just keep doing, just keep doing exactly what you're doing. Okay. You know, it, it's your world. If right. they want to come into it, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine too. Mm. But yeah. Don't ever let it deter you or, or feel odd about what you're doing. You just keep doing it. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. And just trying to figure out how to, how to make it work. I mean, you know, at first I had a, a comic strip uh, that was kind of based on my experiences uh, two years in, in Japan and kind of doing it uh, more like not a journal comic, but it's closer to that. And and then it kind of morphed into the family comic. And so I just, it, it's not the same kind of thing. And so one thing I've noticed as a cartoonist is just how long things take to shape and form. And I think that you know, especially on Blockhead, uh, Jeff, you've talked about this, I think, before with Charles Schultz and how, you know, Peanuts kind of became, you know, it took years to become what it is now. And and I, I try to kind of stay strong with my strip and, and say that, OK, there are things that don't quite work right now and I don't know what to do for them, but I have to just keep going and trying, trying this and trying that and, and then things may come together one day to really, and it's already coming together. You just don't notice it, but it takes time 
to really create something that uh, is is powerful and yeah and and high quality. I think definitely, definitely. You know, a strip I think uh, that that holds its own for a number of years is like the accumulation of all of these little moments. You know, that all come together over a period of time. And you and as the creator, you don't notice them. But you know, if you have the fortune, good fortune to be a reader who goes back and looks at a collection, you can see the development and see how things come together um it's it's you know those developments are just gradual but in a comic strip it's kind of interesting uh the best comic strips like you know your own rays charles schultz uh, all of the, all of those, those characters develop slowly, organically over time, and it, and it is kind of a, a very slow process. It's different than writing for cinema or writing for, um, for a novel or something like that, because you you know it's got it's a long term thing, and so those personalities only grow in increments. It's like uh, Pat Sandy said something uh, not too long ago. It was like writing. It's like writing a novel one sentence at a time, you know, mm. when you're doing a comic strip and if something like that. And it, and it seems to me that that's kind of the way it is. Characters develop gradually over the, over the course of many years, it seems to take. And um, but, it's even that idea of, uh, you know, just kind of switching to re- kind of going off of what's happening now in the world or, or what's what's going on uh, currently. It's it helps with the characters in some ways because then I think about, okay, well, how will this character react to this and how will that character, and then they, they grow and, and change and, and shape again. So I'm, I'm having fun thinking about, you know, what, what is this character like in this situation just by, yeah, staying up with what's going on now. And you know, what you're, what you're just talking about is very interesting where, uh, sure, these sort of situations and all, they help develop the characters as you do them, but, you know, the characters also help to develop you <laughs> as, as, as a person, you know, as an artist, as a creative. It, it goes back both ways, actually. I, first time I actually thought of that, now that you brought it up. But uh, I know I'm a very different person because of doing this strip. And, uh, Khalid, you probably are also. You've mm-hmm. grown probably in ways you didn't even know yet. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. And, and. And that's good to hear. Just that idea of, yeah, they're they're helping us as well, and they're also alive to us, right? What? Of how they may, what they may tell you, they're going to say is kind of like, whoa, that was a surprise. And so I do see that <laughs> of, of, okay, I, I didn't think about it that way. I, I have to go into a, another character's head, person's head, and and then kind of think a little differently and and expand myself. I I think these characters are alive to all of our audiences, right, true. because uh, I, I'm pretty sure you go through this. You get these this fan mail who may criticize you or they love your stuff, you know, all because it really spoke to them. Right. There may be certain incidences that you, you've commented on that really touches a person. And I know I, for one, I, I really see the importance of talking with people when they're so passionate about this trip. Uh, sometimes they go a little bit far, you know, right. in, in their concerns and all. But um, it, I think about it and I don't get upset. I say, wow, these people really like the strip. They wouldn't be writing if they didn't. You know, even if there's something they don't like, they're doing it because they love what they've seen. 
Yes. You know, you become a part of their life. You know, it's a small part, but you're there nonetheless. Yeah, and I, yeah, I was thinking the one thing that you do well that I'm looking to improve on and grow in is just this idea of, you know, specifics, right? You know, like kind of honing in on something specific, but also making it general. And I think that that is one of the things that I'm I'm looking to 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 improve on. It's just really so because that specific thing you think, oh, well, no one's going to relate to this, but somehow you put it in a way that they can, and then they see themselves in in that character, in that person, in that situation. I think is is kind of uh, a big deal that is a challenge for a cartoonist. One of the things that uh, comes to mind while you, you guys are talking here is Ray was talking about how the fans kind of identify with the characters in the strip. And, you know, right now, we don't know what's happening with Mrs. Nelson. Uh, uh, Curtis's teacher's yeah. got COVID. And so I'm like on pins and needles waiting to find out you know what the, her response is going to be and whether she makes it through or not i mean those are the kinds of things you do you do That's start right. you care for these characters and you really begin to feel for them and if they're gone or they're in danger you feel something for them and um you know, uh, it really tugs at the heartstrings, and um, that's one of the magics, uh, one of the magic moments or elements of working in comics. I think. Yep. Yeah, to to make people feel. Mm-hmm. So what's going to happen to Mrs. Nelson? That's what. I'm <laughs> well, you, you know, I can't tell you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I I can tell you this. Uh, Mrs. Nelson is actually based on my real life third grade teacher. And uh, she was a teacher who first told my parents that I had uh, some sort of autistic talent. And she was the very first person to push me. And I love her dearly. Is she still with us? or, or No, she, she she's passed not. Away? Uh, like I said, that was third grade. And yeah. she was probably in her 50s then. Oh, okay. So, so I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, she's gone. Uh, but um, I just want to leave it with that, that, you know, I love her a lot. Yeah. You know, that's something about teaching. I'm thinking of Khalid now, who uh, you don't know the impact you have on students. And uh, it's kind of nice to know that um, she showed up after all these years. She had that kind of impact on you that you would honor her with her depiction in your comic strip. I wonder if she ever knew. I don't know. You know, if she had family, maybe she knew. But uh, I have to tell you, the, the strip made its debut uh, in October of 88. Mm -hmm. The very first strip was about her and Curtis. Hmm. Wow. The very first strip was about her and Mrs. Nelson, uh, him and Mrs. Nelson. And they had a combative relationship immediately. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. uh, not based on your own, though. From, it, no, it, it I, I was like actually, it. I was scared of Mrs. Nelson. She was a tall woman, very, very grand, very, uh, very suave. Um, the, the, she was a black woman, and I mean, she had her hair together. She she did just what I always depict. She would tug at her glasses when she spoke to you. <laughs> and during those, those times, teachers were allowed to discipline you. Yeah. <laughs> so, I oh. mean, physically. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. So, uh, Mrs. Nelson was a big woman that I used to see uh, yank a kid out of 
you know, his or her chair and take her in the hallway and you could hear her yelling. She was a strong woman. So, I mean, she made a real impact on me. I, I didn't screw up that year. <laughs> I made sure I passed. <laughs> I, you know, times have changed in that regard. I had a teacher in first grade who was not shy about, you know, bringing out the, the, the palate and whooping yeah. your behind, you know, and, yeah. uh, and I, I had one, and I used to be a kid who laughed a lot in class. So one, I, I remember at Thanksgiving, we were going home early the day before Thanksgiving. And she said, now, Jeff, be sure to tell your parents you were a good boy. You didn't get spanked once today. Mm. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> it's a different world. Yep. Yeah. At least in that regard. I mean, some things don't change, but some things remain the same, you know. Well, you know, I, I could, now I know Khalid won't admit to it, but I know. He doesn't act upon it, but I'm pretty sure there's some students he wouldn't mind like kicking their behind. Oh, oh boy, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it. hard. Yeah, you really have to have to you know control, but also in just how you how you speak and everything and all of that. It it is it is hard sometimes, but but overall, I mean, I think that uh, you know teaching and education, it's just like of all the things I've done, and I feel like I I tend to get the most back from from teaching. It's just and and sometimes, yeah, I mean, students will say thank you, or they'll they'll come back a few years later after they graduate, and they'll just say, oh, you know, like what you taught me about this, and I remember it, and I'll never forget. And and you just you there's no, you can't put a price on those moments. It's it's amazing. And so even those those tough times when you're like, oh my gosh, I can't I can't take it. It it really is kind of worth it to do that. And and if you're in the right place, you can laugh a lot. Uh, a lot of people don't get that on their jobs, you know, because kids are funny. I mean, yep. kids are hilarious, and there's a lot of jokes that come from that, a lot of character moments that come from just being in the classroom and seeing what kids do and, and how they think. So, so yeah, it's it's definitely, uh, yeah, pretty magical sometimes. That is kids, fantastic. Yeah, kids will, will keep you young, too, you know. Uh, right. You know, raising kids may make you old, but teaching kids... You know, <laughs> teaching kids will keep you young to a certain degree uh you know it's it's a and i and i have to say that uh, my own experience has has been a good one in terms of that i've had some very rewarding moments with with young people and uh you know i don't know if you both know the cartoonist jan elliott of stone soup oh yes yeah jan was on a couple weeks ago and uh and she had some uh, experience teaching too she taught a course when she first stepped down from doing we um daily on stone soup to weekly uh she taught a course and uh found it you know again really rewarding the same thing you know you just don't know what kind of impact you're going to have on kids and sometimes they come back and visit you years later and uh uh you know they're fondly remembering what you brought to them and that's kind of a very important i think thing that we as teachers kind of take for granted sometimes but um you know it's a it's a good experience if you can have it and uh, and I know Ray, you've interacted with so many cartoonists over the years. In a way, you've been a teacher yourself. Yeah, I, I try to mentor uh, people whenever they ask for it. Uh, it. You know, it's not a thing where it's formal or anything, but I try to teach people on the the level that they're at, hmm. and uh, just try to uplift them. And so mm-hmm. many of them come to me almost depressed, thinking that uh, their work is no good or anything, and and I just try to, to bring them up to a level that they really like. Because uh, everybody 
everybody deserves to be inspired. No one should be, you know, pushed down, uh, especially if there's something they want to do or someone they want to be. So um, that's my role. I, I just like to do it. And I, I've kept in touch with a number of them uh, over the years. They, one calls me Sensei. He's been calling me that for <laughs> a minute. And, uh, wow, he, we've been together about seven years now. And another one that's been, been uh, talking with me for about a decade now, they stay in touch. And that part is nice. I do get, you know, great feelings from it. Uh, although the, the only thing is with a lot of mentoring, you don't really get a chance to see what they look like unless they, they post themselves. But, um, you know, basically um, we get to know each other just uh, blindly almost. Mm. You know, w- what we look like, I guess, isn't that important. It's just what, what they want to do. You know, I was I was thinking that also while you were speaking that not only, you know, have you been an exemplar for other cartoonists coming up and, and in particular for other cartoonists of color coming up because you were, you know, along with Maury Turner and, and Ted Shearer, you were really groundbreaking in, in that sense. I mean, Curtis, the strip itself, the fact that you've been doing it consistently and, and successfully all these years, I think you can't underestimate the importance of that contribution i think to uh to younger cartoonists and particularly younger cartoonists of color you know to to see that you're there and doing it day in and day out and and at the level that you do it is i think inspiring well thank you that's very kind that's very kind thing to say uh i all i could say is my love for the industry just keeps me doing it I, I do it for no other reason than just for the love of it. I don't know what life would be like if I didn't draw. I, my earliest memories of, uh, are of me drawing. It just comes natural to you. And, and this is one of the things that always strikes me about Curtis. You know, every word in Curtis is written by you. Every drawing is done right. by you. All of the inking is done by you. You know, in that way, I mean, you know, there's really in comic strips, it's rare that a cartoonist working on a daily comic strip is really in charge of the whole thing, including answering fan mail himself. Yeah. And, and I mean, that goes even farther than Charles Schultz, who didn't answer. I mean, he did answer fan mail, but he did have a staff of people to help him, uh, you know, with that. But I mean, in really, in that sense, you're a true heir of that mentality that cartooning and and comic strips are an art form and a personal expression and that's what curtis is it's it's a work of personal expression as is fried chicken and sushi too you know that's what i was yeah i was gonna i'm just gonna comment on that because that's part of what helps keep me going just this idea that i can always think back on 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 ray it's like if i think oh why do i keep doing this and oh i should just stop and everything and i'm like but but ray's doing it He's he's every day, and he's doing it on his own. He's answering the you know all the things that you just listed. I'm just kind of like yeah, and it's his his voice, and and he's able to do it. And so you know having having Ray there is is just yeah, just that constant motivation of knowing that if I'm wondering, then I can just kind of go and look and read a a Curtis strip and say yep yep he's 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 doing his thing, and so I can do mine. And and that is that is 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 huge for me, and to have had that as a young person coming up and, and being able to to read 
his strip and to, and to be able to say, yes, yes, I can, is, is just, yeah, it, it's amazing. Wow, that, that's really nice. That is really nice. I, I don't know what to say. That, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, you know, you. Uh, you know, I think one of the things we, we need to see and haven't seen, and this goes to the question of racism playing out in all kinds of ways in public, in our public life, is that a strip like Curtis still has yet to be acknowledged with, uh, you know, the National Cartoonist Society Award and uh, the Rubin Award, and it deserves it. And it, it, needs to be collected in a, in a variety, you know, a number of collections, great, or one big collection, but there needs to be, you know, some acknowledgement of the quality of work that you've been doing, Ray, for all of these years. And I think it's attributable to something. And I think it, while overtly people may not be, there may not be a racist kind of thing expressed overtly, somehow underneath it, it feels like subtly there's, there is some kind of prejudice at work um, that, that keeps the strip from being acknowledged in the way that it needs to be and should be acknowledged. I sometimes feel that, uh, unfortunately. Sometimes I do feel that. Uh, it's especially bad when uh, I'm around a lot of the other ones and, you know, they are supposed to be friends. I, I think they just overlook me when it comes to certain things, because I, I am sort of quiet and reserved. Um, I mean, I, I've been doing, I've been in the industry so long. I'm not a person that says, look at me, look at me. I, I'm not one of those. I, I tend to listen more. I listen to people more. I'm, I'm in the background more. So, uh, I mean, that could be a, a reason why. Um, I actually need some sort of a publicist or somebody with you know, uh, ice in their blood. Mm-hmm. Mm. Push me. I, it, it's just not in me. I'm, I'm just not that type of person. You're at the drawing table. Yep. Yeah. But I think, I think that this is the, the time where it can really work. I mean, if you think about say the, the book, I know, you know, Ray, a uh, new kid by Jerry Kraft, and that is just breaking all the records and and it's just, you know, and it's uh, that's been huge and a popular book in, in our household and just also inspiring. But it shows that kids want to read about black people and um, they can read about a black boy and it's just fine. I think that even just teaching students and I've lived in many different places and, you know, every time I'm there and it's usually kindergarten through eighth grade or so, the kids, they, they just want to read something fun. They really don't care nowadays. I mean, they just yeah. want to read great exactly. stories and laugh and all of that. They'll they'll read it and they'll they'll love Curtis uh, just the same as any other thing. And I th- I feel like you know like let's just let's just let the audience decide on this. And so yeah, that's that's kind of where I am right now. This is the time. You know, it's interesting. I haven't read New Kid, but my um, first experience of of hearing about it was actually uh, my wife does a show. Uh, she's a hat maker. And actually, Ray, I meant to tell you this a long time ago. Um, my, my wife actually makes hats. She's a milliner. And you do all these strips about these big, funny hats, you know? Yeah. You're always making fun of the hats. And my wife <laughs> makes hats that are not too far off from, from some of those hats. But um, so it's great, actually. She loves seeing those comics, and so do I. And uh, But anyway, she's doing this, this craft show. And it's in Westport, Connecticut, which is, you know, fairly well-to-do 
primarily white community in Connecticut. And right. actually, Ray, you live in Stanford, so I think it's not too far away from West. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> yeah. But it's a pretty, pretty rich area, which is why it's a good place to do a show because we can sell a lot of stuff there. And, and it's a good audience for the stuff my wife makes. Anyway, uh, it's held in a school. It's held in an, uh, a, what is it? A, a junior high school, um, high school kind of com- combined school. And well, they got, just call it middle school now. Yeah, I guess that's right. You know, yeah. I sound like an old man now. But it, yeah, middle school <laughs> is exactly. And and it's by the way, it's like the ritziest, wealthiest middle school I've ever seen. I've never seen it. I mean, these kids have everything. It's amazing. But yeah. posters for new kids, for new kid, were up all over the hallways in that school. And um, that's how I got introduced to it and found out what it was about was the posters. And those kids in that school are reading that book and loving that book. And I think it was like it was noted in one of the posters. It was voted number one on um, the, the kids choices of best new books to read. So it's having an impact even in, in environments like those. I can tell you about Jerry. He's been working his behind off for decades. Mm-hmm. He was once working like uh, in the art department of King Features, so oh. that's when I first met him. But I didn't I, know that. Wow. Oh yeah, he's he's been at it for a long time, and uh, I watched him through his strip, Mama's Boys. Right, I remember that one. Yep. Heard I, I saw him grow up with that, and believe it or not, uh, Jerry also has many other books. He's, he's done a slew of books. Uh, New Kid is not the first one. Uh-huh. Okay. So this success was sort of like in the making for years because uh, Jerry was a type he didn't give up. You know, he did one book and, and then silently as no one knew it, all of a sudden he came out with another one and so on and so on. So um, I was really happy to see how this one went off for him. I, I mean, I even posted for him on Instagram, you know, trying to tell the people, you know, this is a great book. Make sure you get this book. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize he worked in the art department at King Features. That's yeah. kind of, you know, that's the long way up, actually, right, through through the art department. It takes a right. while sometimes to climb that ladder. Well, and. Well, the good thing that I could imagine about working there is that you're exposed to so much artwork. Oh, yeah. All the strips, you know, all of them. And you see them firsthand. And during those days, uh, I guess he was handling a lot of originals, Mm. which is almost, you know, not not heard of anymore. You know, everything is on computer. So uh, most people don't even get a chance to touch an original. Right. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, most people, but you're still working original, uh, Ray. You're still working on paper, right? I'm a traditionalist. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't brought up like that. Uh, I, I wish I was better at the computer. Maybe I would do more ordering computer, but I, I'm so comfortable doing it the way I'm doing it. Uh, it it's, it's natural as breathing. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, Khalid, have you ever, did you begin working traditionally or have you always worked digitally? I did, yeah. You know, I'm kind of in between, you know, like I came up with traditional and and uh, always working on paper. And so, 
you know, for me, I started the original fried chicken and sushi comic strip all on paper with Bristol board and pen and, and, you know, non-photo blue pencil and all of that. And it was great, you know, like doing, doing the, the strips that way and scanning them in and, and then coloring on, on Photoshop and kind of taking in the, uh, you know, um, computer side that way. But, but over, uh, about three or four years or so, you know, like I, I, all of this came out with the Wacom Cintiq and, and also Manga Studio, which is now Clip Studio Paint, um, software for drawing comics and people just kept talking about it. And so I, I wanted to give it a try and I fell in love with it. And so it's just kind of like now I've been all digital. And so it's not the same, you know, you don't, you're, you're drawing on basically glass. And so it's very slippery. You don't have the pull of the paper, which I miss, but I do enjoy just all, you know, that you can do with it, just that you can sketch easily and remove things. And my comics seem to move a little bit faster and I tend to have more fun with it. You know, when I try to go back and work traditionally, it's not the same. I love to draw with pencil. I still love that feeling and draw and ink on paper. But when it comes to making comics now, I really enjoy the fact that I can just kind of do it all in one program. I can, I can, I can sketch it, draw it, color it all in one, and then boom, pop it online. And so it's been, it's been great to experience that. But but I think that both are important. I mean, I could definitely go back to doing traditional for a different project one day, but that's because that's kind of how I was raised with it. But yeah, the um, everything that, that you can do digitally now is just amazing technology. And it's had an impact on, I think, just about everything um, in, in terms of the way comics are produced. The pens have become so sensitive and to the touch and all of that. It's hard to, um, to deny the improvements that have happened since the Wacom first came along and the Wacom pens and all of those. They've just become so much more sensitive. The Apple pen in particular is just so great and uh, makes such a big difference. But, you know, I was wondering, Khalid, um, when you first wrote to Ray and he wrote back to you, what kind of advice did he give to you? I know, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I think that it was, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, just just keep going and learning and, you know, kind of the idea of, of learning to draw the, the human body, that's important. Uh, and which was good to hear because, you know, you think about even just comic strips and, and all that, you think, oh, I don't need to learn to draw anything uh, that great because I don't have to put a lot of detail in. But that's not true. I mean, you know, like comic strips, comic books, you need to learn to draw everything. And so just that kind of idea of that, you know, it's going to take some time and you're on the right track, keep working and keep growing. And so that was what I needed to hear. And, and so that's kind of stayed in my mind. And it's even what I teach when I teach students of just like this, this takes time, but especially if you're making comics, it's important to learn to, you know, the mechanics of how things work and how to draw them. And yeah, to kind of just keep, keep going with it. Wow. <laughs> wow. One of the things that, that strikes me when you, you were saying that, you know, that it takes time, learning to draw takes time, um, learning to do comics well and a comic strip to develop takes time. And the culture we live in now is so much based on immediate gratification. Oh, that's right. And, you know, finding the time. And in this, in this particular case, I mean, comic strips are kind of 
uh, an anomaly in the sense that there's no way of getting around the kind of time you've got to put in to create right. a comic strip uh, that that lives. I mean, it takes five years for it to really come together. But do you think so? Do you think so now? You know, like I, I wonder because I'm seeing so many comics on Instagram, which is a great place to to put comics. It's kind of my new favorite uh, place to post. And I see so many of these new comics and they they have so many followers, of course, many more than I do. And and it's such an easy thing for people to just kind of scroll through and and read. And I, and I wonder, you know, are they reading it just because it's funny or are they fully invested in the comic itself, as far as the story and the characters, it seems like people that are putting out this this work, it, it's getting attention so much faster than I believed. Doesn't mean the comic is good, but still, it's it's exciting in some ways. But it makes me wonder what what will become of comics right now. I had an experience with one of those kids that uh, do a lot of posting, and. Uh, he had been posting for, I'd say, about three years and had, you know, a, a lot of followers and all. And he happened to self-publish a book. And he wrote to me and he said, Ray, nobody will buy my book. Uh, all these followers, but nobody will give me a penny. Yeah, they're not, they're not yeah. infested and they're not, they're not yeah. fully there. They're just kind of casually reading. Exactly. I mean, as long as it was free. <laughs> right. And yes. He said, now I know who my friends are. I said, hey, you know, mm. it, it's it's part of the business, right? You can see so much for free that you know it's almost like why would they pay for it anymore? It's it's interesting. I, I you know I think Khalid points out, and I think both of you are making int really interesting points in that regard. I mean, I'm thinking of of different strips that I read on Instagram, some of which have an interesting interaction between the author and the fan base and the fans really seem to care about the characters. And then there are others where, you know, they seem popular, but you don't really get that kind of interaction. And I don't know how you find or juggle it or, you know, how you find that sweet spot where, uh, you find an audience that's really going to invest themselves. I know, you know, with, with newspapers and comic strips in the old days, it was, it was so, Part, so much a part of it you know you read the newspaper every day it came to your house and the comics page was there so you got to know the characters in there and if you read them every day you just became invested in what happened to them and so hmm. there's a different you remember that that was the main reason why comics were formed in the first place it mm -hmm. was to help sell papers right that, that's, that's what they were completely about people would buy certain papers because their favorite characters were in them. It's not even like they were going by headlines most times. It's just about who who did they like the most in the strips. And the bad thing is, papers had seemed to forget that. Mm. They started taking cartoonists for granted. Yeah. And that goes along with magazines, all sorts of print. They seemed to forget that, you know, uh, cartooning was actually an important part of them. Now, see, with, with the Internet the way it's going, uh, I'm not saying that it's not as important, but with so, so many people just posting and everyone reading it, that's really why a lot of cartoonists aren't making any money. Right. Uh, I've, I've heard from several people about, uh, I'd like to keep doing this, but, 
you know, I'm not making a dime. I, I have a GoFundMe page and nobody's putting in or anything like that. Uh, and it's what Khalid was saying. They're not invested enough to, to pay any money. Well, you know, all, everything's changing, right? It's changing from mass audiences to micro audiences. And I think that's the, that's the key where I was uh, speaking before about specifics and, and how, you know, now people are looking for that specific thing that, that speaks to them and that they know, okay, we've got a lot of choices out here. There's tons of stuff that I can read and get into. I want the thing that's just for me. And so I think that's the, the challenge of making it a place where you're maybe not going to get millions of people that will buy your work, but that whole, you know, uh, 10,000 true fans or 1,000 true fans type idea of, okay, I've got these people that really want to, uh, that really want what I'm putting out, and it doesn't have to be a lot of people. And so I think that that is kind of the shift that's happening now of how do I, how do I get the people that really just want the thing that I have, and I'm one of their top choices. And there's no formula for that. You know, that, that's, I mean, you, you, you strike a chord. I mean, it, it, in some ways it's, it, it's still like it was in the old days in the sense that you either strike a chord or you don't strike a chord um, with an audience. Finding that, you know, finding that, that niche market um, is, is kind of, um, I don't know that you can come up with a formula for it, you know, I guess. Uh, and it's interesting, my own experience, I, I've been, had been doing this comic strip about actresses, uh, working on it for a couple of years yeah, and every now and again, I still great. pull it. And the funny thing is, is when I first started posting it, uh, I got all of these likes from people in Hollywood, uh, actors, you know, people who were trying to find their way in the business and writers and things like that, all in the movie business. And, and I stopped posting for a while and they, you know, I'm posting other things or whatever. And I never get any, inter any interaction from those guys on that stuff. When I post one of the comic strips about the actresses, which I just did a couple of days ago, uh, all of a sudden they crop up out of the woodwork. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's directly to them. That's it. Yeah. They're interested in one thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, but I think the challenge and it, it goes back to some of the stuff that we've been talking about today, you know, with all this information coming at us all the time. I mean, the challenge is really to be cognizant and aware and particularly aware of the things that are of great importance, you know, right. to us to be educated about, you know, I mean, there are things like, again, I'm showing my age, but I'm a, I'm a big Beatles fan. Right. So I, I will go to any post that anywhere about Beatles stuff. It doesn't matter what it is. And I've read almost everything there is about them. It doesn't matter. I go back and I read it. It's just like, that's my, my, my little place of happiness, you know, is mm -hmm. in that. Music. Sure. Okay. Sure. So, so that's great. Wonderful. And it's great that, that there's a lot of people like me out there who like the same stuff and we can, okay, kibitz about that. Mm. But at the same time, you know, you got to be cognizant of the stuff that really matters. You got to, you got to climb out of your comfort zone and you got to find out about what's happening to other people in the world. You got to uh, educate yourself about what's happening in the government and got to know what's happening in the world that, you know, in terms of uh, COVID or, or whatever issues that are happening, people that have been, you know, uh, devastated in some natural disaster, you know, people need help people. You got to, 
be aware of what's going on or, you know, the way the environment is being impacted and trying to make changes in the way we live our lives. You know, paying attention to that stuff is part of the challenge when all of this information is coming at you at such a, a rapid pace. And um, so climbing out of that niche is important, too, you know. You know, a lot, a lot of what you just spoke about, that shows that you're actually a, a special type of person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because what I find is that a lot of people are closed as to what's going on. Uh, the whole fact that people nitpick and choose exactly what they want, or this is just the one for me, shows that they're a little bit closed-minded. Yeah, they want to stay in their room. That's right. Yeah, that that goes back to like the closing of bookstores, you know, things like that. I used to love to go to bookstores. Now, I'd, I'd have a particular book in mind, but there was nothing better than going around and browsing and picking up other thoughts. Oh, yeah, that, that's that, great. Yes, yes. Mm. That, that is the worst thing about the Internet where you can't browse. Right. You no. Know, you could only get that one voice you're looking for. And that's what also makes it so hard about cartooning. That's why the actresses and actors only mm. pick up when you do certain things. Because yeah. they're not open to the rest of it. And see, that's, that's a bad part. Right. We have this, this big problem with climate change because it's almost, it's almost popular to say, of course, I'm against it. Mm-hmm. But if you get into real specifics about it with people, they don't know what the hell you're talking about. Right. <laughs> and it is because they haven't studied it. You know, it's, it's, if it's not in their orbit, they don't really pay it any mind. Mm-hmm. You're, you're absolutely right, you know. And, and that um, uh, analogy to the bookstore, I think, is so important. I, I, I'm like you, Ray. I used to love that, going to the bookstore. You just stumble upon... You know, you go look for your book, but then, you know, you're browsing and you just stumble upon something that you never maybe thought about before, you know, might have to do with, you know, science or or something about the universe or something about consciousness or, you know, you just don't know what you were going to encounter philosophy and religion and, you know, and and too often when we, you know, are just clicking from one thing to another, it's just one thread, you know, that's right. following one train of thought. You yeah. even see, like, on, on AOL or, or certain things, it says, this was suggested just for you. Yeah. That's yeah. not great. I, I don't know <laughs> what I should read. You know, it, it, it's telling you what you should be interested in. Mm-hmm. And that's a danger. Yes. Because it, it starts making you part of a pack. Yeah. Right. And See, when I when I was coming up, it was all about being an individual yep. and not being afraid to be individual. Now you're almost afraid to be an individual. I mo- notice most people have to be part of whatever's popular. Mm-hmm. And see, that that's a danger. Well, you know, it's interesting. The concept of individuality seems to have changed somewhat. Since, you know, the period that that you're referring to and, you know, I'm not that much younger than you. So, you know, it's I've experienced that, too. But I think when I think now about all these people who like gather together, those those protesters in Michigan at the statehouse with those those rifles, you know, who showed up. uh, It's my individual liberty. I don't have to wear a mask. And there's like 40 of them with rifles. 
in the state house, you know, complaining that their individual rights are being trampled on. But that seems to be, to me, a perverted view of what it means to be an individual, you know? Well, they're a mob. That's yeah. Pretty, that's yeah, mob that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, they're only brave like that as long as there's other people behind them. It's mm-hmm. the same thing that gangs used to do, the ones that roam the streets picking on little kids. It's the same mentality. Yep. Uh, a lot of these people, they wouldn't be as bold if it was just them. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. You know, you're, you're probably, or if they didn't have, you know, those assault weapons with them. You know? True, exactly. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. It makes me wonder if, if most of those people even know how to use them. It's easy to brandish a gun. <laughs> right. You know, do you even know how to shoot them? Do you know the kickback on these things? Yeah. You, you can blow your shoulder out from shooting a rifle wrong. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and how dangerous it is, you know, to have them laying around if you don't know how to take care of them. Oh, there was a, a story that I read a couple of years back. Um, I, it made me feel kind of odd because uh, there was a fellow, I think he was Midwest and he was very definitely uh, sort of prejudiced. I mean, he had a Confederate flag on his truck and he was teaching I think his little daughter was either four, five, or six. He took her out to a target range to teach her how to shoot with a rifle. First shot, she shot him and killed him. Oh. I, I said, wow, wow. Talk about retribution. Mm. He said, this, this girl is going to be on a psychiatrist's couch for the rest of her life. You know, all of this just because he wanted to teach her something that she didn't really need to know. Yeah. 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 And, you, and I'm not a, a gun person. It's not my not my thing. So uh, it never has been never been a part of my family or my my upbringing. So I don't have a lot of sympathy for gun advocates. Um, in, what I hate, you know, I hate to see people who post uh, themselves hunting. Oh, yeah. I don't like seeing that either. Me neither. You know, they shot some poor animal and they're standing over him smiling. That yeah. is the worst. I mean, I, I, I don't see the pride in that. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. I, I'm, I'm with you there. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I, I, it's it, talking about all of this is is um, it's really inspirational in, in a way for us to be talking here today about all of these issues and and hashing it out. You know, as it were, because I think this, these are important discussions, you know, that, that we have to have. And um, and I'm really glad that we were able to get together to do this today. Yeah, same here. Thank you for making this happen, Jeff. Yeah, it's been really great. Oh, it, it sounds like you're about to kick us off. Oh, heck no. I could go <laughs> on for another half hour. I just, you know, I mean, it's fine with me, man. If you. <laughs> okay. if you you guys want to keep talking. I'm all up for it. You know, it's it's because I think the discussion is one that just, uh, you know, it, it has to go on and and we have to have it. And um, and I think talking about the impact, you know, first of all, just talking about ex- experiences as cartoonists, I think, is really important. And, and oh. you know, and I, I don't want to underscore the. Well, maybe I do. You know, we're talking about two different generations of cartoonists here. You know, we're we're talking about and Ray. I'm not saying you're old, um, but you know, oh, uh, believe me, I an understand el- it. An I, elder I, statesman. I, let's let's call it that. I and look back. Co- and what's you know that? What? 
I, I look back and actually I've been in this industry for 50, 51 years. Man. Wow. I've been drawing cartoons for 51 years. So, yeah, I am the oldest statement. <laughs> yeah. mind you, at, at one point, I was a youngster. Yes. Right? Yep. The, the, the people, the, the cartoonists used to call me kid. And they, <laughs> they, they teased me unmercifully. It was almost like older brother, younger brother sort of thing. So you can just think of your top cartoonists. They used to be mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? well, you, you were like a prodigy, though. You well, were, I, I, like I said, they treated me like I was the little brother. Oh, okay. They didn't see any of that other stuff. You know, this was just someone to pick on, and I mean, I loved it. I loved it. I, I was getting, you know, I was being joked about by, you know, Schultz and things like that. It, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was surreal, surreal living. Wow. You, you know. You, you and, were. And let me tell you, you know what? Life for me, it was always like living two lives. Hmm. Because at it, it, it one, one side of my life, I could go do an interview or, or speak in front of 500 people at the Smithsonian. And then I would come back home to my neighborhood. And my buddies were talking about, you know, putting money together to get a 40 ounce. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, life was always very different mm-hmm. and I, I wasn't allowed to do a lot of the things that I saw normal, normal kids my age do. I, I wasn't able to do it. So uh, all this stuff coming from the other cartoonists, I loved it. It, it made me feel like uh, I belong somewhere. Well, it became a community. Yeah. You know, for, for Car- you. Cartoonists are community. Yeah, we're we're the uh, community. I guess editors they're their own community. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's funny uh, because you notice that people who do strips tend to hang together, mm-hmm. and people who do comic books, superheroes, that sort of genre, they seem to stick together. It's almost like little cliques. Yeah, audiences too. The audience seems to do that too. You oh, know, there, sure. There's, the comic strip audience and there's a comic book audience. Right, that's right. Now we haven't had many movies about comic strips, you know, except for things like Peanuts. Uh, but uh, all the ones with super superheroes, you see like the same audience going to. Right. Mm-hmm. It would be sort of interesting to see if there were more movies with comic strips, if there would be that crossover audience. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't know either. I know some some comic strips do seem to cross the line, you know, seem to bring in some of that, some of the comic book audience, a few of them. As you said, Peanuts, obviously, but I'm trying to think now. Boy, when was the last time we saw a, a comic strip movie? Well, that's see, the yeah. bad thing about that is, uh, and this is sort of like narrow, narrow sight by producers and all. This is why you keep seeing peanuts or say like Garfield they're not putting any money into anything that isn't already proven yeah and see it's a catch-22 because they're not aware that your property might pull in those same money yeah because they're not about who you are or how creative you are the main thing is about what kind of profit can they make that's that's all it, it is 
So doing a Peanuts or a Garfield, they're guaranteed a certain amount of money. Right. And they won't invest it unless they have that guarantee. Exactly. It's, it seems like a, a miracle almost when something new or different is able to come out and, and become a success just because right. of that, where you know there's so many different people involved in taking a risk with this. And, and even down to it doesn't have to cost that much to take a chance. You know, maybe you, it's a low-budget type situation where they're going to try it out. But, yeah, when something new is able to, to come out, it's, it's like, wow, this made it through. And, and we definitely need more of that coming Remember, up soon. They did that with The Simpsons. Right, yeah. Matt, yeah. Matt was drawing his strip, uh, My Life in Hell. Yeah, right. That's right. And they, they wanted to animate that, and he didn't want them to take it. Hmm. So he came up with The Simpsons, and they went along with that. And, of course, it took right off. Right. But it, it's got to be a company. Uh, Fox was still fledgling at that time. That's so right. it, was, it was looking for content. Right. So his, right. his timing was just perfect. Also, the audience, we were looking for something more than just, say, like Disney. Yes. And it was in a period of, you know, before The Simpsons, it was kind of the doldrums in animation for a while. And uh, and he came along, The Simpsons came along just at the right time for the right audience. I mean, it was kind of all these things clicked at once. Right. Before him, I mean, before Homer, uh, you didn't see characters drinking and, and uh, getting drunk right. and driving and all that. They broke a lot of molds. Mm. And uh, mm -hmm. it, these are the same molds that people are, are now, once again, sort of scared to do. Mm -hmm. Unless you're like a Seth MacFarlane. Yeah. You, you yeah. have to be on that kind of grand scale now, but how do you even get there if they don't give you the chance the first time? I mean, they don't even give you the chance to fail at it. And see, that's the bad part. Yeah, you got to be willing to risk. You know, I think there used to be with every new thing that was put up, whether new comic strips, well, yeah, in the comic strip business, right? They, for every 10 comic strips they put out in a period of time during the heyday, only one might connect. But right. they tried, you know, and, and they experimented. Now they don't do that. They, they, uh, they put you through the paces uh, for a couple of years before they're willing to put it out on the market. And, and so they whittle it down. So that there is really very little experimentation, very little willingness to invest funds that aren't secure. Right. right. Well, I right. hope that that, that that is also changing or will continue to change just because of streaming. I really hope that with Netflix, uh, right. it's kind of, yeah. kind of taking the charge on that. And we have others um, that are doing the same, like Hulu and, and Amazon Prime Video and that sort of thing, where if we... You know there are there are new shows and animated shows that I'm paying attention to where where it's something very different and they have a chance to to just try it to just put the put the first season out see how it goes and you have more diverse characters that are in these in these shows and so that shows me okay there could be a ray of hope happening here where we have streaming as an option to kind of go that way so I, I hope that's uh, where this ends up. I do too, actually. I, I think that's where it is going. Yeah. But uh, regular, the regular channels, the regular way is not working. Right. Yeah. It, well, it's being superseded by, you know, YouTube and Netflix and, and Amazon. And, and you're right, Khalid. I think those are the, that's the hope is that they're, they are really hungry for product. Yeah, they and, are. 
they're really hungry. And so, you know, you can put your stuff out there, put together a little, uh, you know, proposal. And there are people there who really want to look at stuff. And um, so, you know, there's a chance there. But even still, YouTube is like, you know, available to everyone who's connected uh, to the Internet. And so you can upload stuff so you can start producing stuff yourself on a small scale and see where it goes. And maybe it will attract an audience and then attract somebody after that. And, you know, thinking about that, I mean, obviously both Curtis and and fried chicken and sushi would be great to see. Uh, you know, in some form on one of those streaming platforms, um, as, as well as any place else, but, um, you know, that would be kind of cool to see. I mean, I was just thinking fried chicken and sushi would be a terrific, uh, really kind of a terrific scenario for a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that could totally work. Just the title alone would get people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh, and they'll be so disappointed when it's not about food. Like, hey, where's the where's the chicken and and, and the sushi? I don't see it. And yeah, <laughs> that's, you know, that's the, nice. the very best thing about it is that it's not a stereotype, right? Because mm-hmm. for one, when people would think of sushi, right away it gives them certain ideas, mm-hmm. and of course, your idea is completely different <laughs> than what yeah, they get by. So, I think alone, just the name would have people tuning in. Right, even, even fried chicken, where it's kind of like you can you can be you can be, make it a stereotype, but but whether you like it or not, all Americans love fried chicken, and so it's kind of a so it's it, it really records okay it's it's clear this is a combination of two things that are different that might not go together, but they actually do go together well, and so yeah. Well, you, you know what the number one thing you got to think about this, chicken is loved everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, there's some religions that won't let you eat certain beefs or meats or things like that. You can't eat pork with some things. Everybody eats chicken. <laughs> Everybody eats chicken. That's true. Right. Yeah. When the lo- little chicken hatches out of the egg, it probably says, oh, God, I'm screwed. He's <laughs> 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 not going to make it. Oh, that's it for him, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, doomed to a life of, you know, whatever. Oh, it's awful. But uh, You're going to be eaten before you were born as an egg. Yeah. Or eaten afterwards, but yeah. either way, you get eaten. <laughs> yeah, one way or the other. There's no avoiding it. And if you're not eaten by human beings, you're eaten by a fox or yeah. something <laughs> else. You know, I actually live. I live in the country in upstate New York, and the guy across the street from us has chickens. And one of those chickens escaped. They're they're actually pretty cool. These chickens, watching them walk around the little field around his property and and you know i didn't grow up in this kind of neighborhood so this is all kind of new to me and i'm watching like these six chickens walking around and they they're the highways right there this road you know it's a very busy road they stay away from that road they know not to cross that road oh yeah you know they know do not go out on the road they stay- <laughs> that's great they know not to cross the road that's good yep. where's my cat though you know i can't let one of my cats out because he he doesn't know any better but the chickens know but um one of the one time one of those chickens got oh, did get away and it ended up in one of our bushes and now i'm i've got this kind of you know i'm revealing a little too much here but, but i've got this kind of innate fear of birds so for me to overcome that fear of birds is is, is a bit much but so this chicken escaped and there was it got into one of our bushes and i didn't want that chicken to go running out in the road so i had to find a way to overcome my fear and grab this chicken, you know, and put my arms around it and give it back to the lady who lives across the street. 
and and I did. And the thing about the chicken is, I I tell you, those chickens are all feathers. There's like oh yeah, there's, they're all yeah. they're, they're so much feather. Oh my god, yeah. I you know I was like shocked. There's like no chicken here. It looks like a big <laughs> fat and chicken, you know, but it's all feathers. You know, a lot of times when when you see chickens that are in yards and all that, and you see them over and over, they actually get to know you by sight. Now um, that I did my not. My grandfather. In, in North Carolina had these types of animals. And I mean, the chickens come right up to you. It's, it's like they're your little pets that you never bring in the house. Uh, uh, only thing you couldn't mess with is a rooster. But I mean, <laughs> the, the chickens, yeah, they came up to you. The chicks would come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, mostly they're looking for food. But um, there's no... There's no reason to really fear birds. They're not out. No, there. I know. <laughs> I know. I just it was something I grew up with, and I don't know why. And and uh, but I did kind of overcome it. We we found a, a starling, you know, a couple of years ago who had fallen out of the nest. We kept trying to put it back in the nest, and the mother kept pushing it back out. And mm-hmm. so we were able to raise the starling, and that was kind of an interesting experience. This is totally off topic, but you know. <laughs> But we fed the starling, and uh, you know, and I learned about that. And the starling, it was this great. We called him cheap because that's what he did. And uh, he ended up like he. I have my baseball cap on. He he'd sit on top of my the bill on my baseball cap, you know. And when he wanted food, you know, if, when he got old enough to fly off on his own, he'd fly up into a tree. And then he wanted food, he'd come screaming down, land on my hat, you know, and scream at me till. In those days, we starlings each eat like uh, meat and insects and things so we right, feed right. little cat food anyway that got me kind of over it you know so i was ready for the chicken yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a t- totally different thing but anyway we got kind of way off the topic of fried chicken and, and sushi but <laughs> but yeah you know chicken is a, is the universal you know meat but it's hard to come by these days, I mean, you know, with COVID, I mean, there's still sure. kind of a meat sort shortage, you know. So, uh, and we've got one dog that won't eat anything but chicken, and and oh. so, yeah, it's kind of finding finding chicken has not been easy. Uh, mm. We go to the store, they're out. But anyway, that's totally off topic. <laughs> let's get let's get back to something else. Now, you know, here's a, here's a topic, Ray. I wanted to a, a address this with you, and I know maybe it's an uncomfortable issue but um you know i gotta i had i feel like i want i need to get your take on it and that is you were you were uh, uh, one of your great mentors was will eisner and yeah you had a, you had a great relationship with will eisner and you right and, you know and he was encouraging although he was also kind of a stern disciplinarian and and we yeah. talked about that a little bit. but what we didn't talk about uh, you know, and I, I'm curious as to your take on it, is the character of Ebony that's in the spirit comic strips, which is Ebony is, you know, just this overtly racist stereotype. Right. And, you know, I mean, how did you ever deal with that with him or, or you know, oh, yeah. or you I, talked I, about that? I actually mentioned it to him. Uh, I brought up one of the magazines and I said, well, what's 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 up? What's with this? And he looked at me. He said, it was the times. And uh, I said, okay, I got you. I got you. It, it's not always, um, it, it wasn't the way he was brought up to think. 
I think it was just the times and he was caught up with it. Uh, during that time, remember, there were very few black images at all. Right. They were, they were all pretty much negative like that. There, there was no getting around it. Right. And, True. Uh, yeah. He is an artist just trying to make a buck. Uh, he just went along with it. But, um, you know, he had no malice for the character. Uh, if you're really familiar with the character of Ebony, uh, he wasn't really like a slew foot. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, if you think about uh, a, an artist like Robert Crumb, yeah, uh, he had a what was that? Uh, Angel who makes spade. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a black woman, and I mean, she got crapped on by people. I mean, literally Ooh. crapped on, and her head was shoved in toilets. That was much more abusive. You know, uh, Will would have never done anything like that. So, like I say, it was just the time. I have to say, I loved Will Eisner growing up. I loved his work. I mean, he was so influential. And, and I've read a number of his graphic novels, and I found them, you know, really powerful and moving. And my respect for him is, is great. But I have to say, looking back on the Spirit comics, I just find it so hard to read. And, and I know what you're saying about Ebony as a character, but I find it so hard to read those comics you know, with with that character, with that stereotype, stereotype right. face all the time, and right. you know, and as like you're saying, those images were prevalent in that period of time, and they crop up in all kinds of ways all over the place in media from that time, and and it's still shocking and disturbing. Like when you you know, there's a Bing Crosby movie or a, a, a Fred Astaire movie comes on and there are characters in blackface or right. you know no, yeah. I mean that kind of stuff hits you. You know, it's like it, it's hard to believe that those that people of that time didn't know what they were doing or were unaware of how dehumanizing those images could be. Right, exactly. I mean, they, they were comfortable in it, I guess, thinking that uh, blacks would never get the sense to rise up. Um, mm-hmm. We're sort of expected just to stay in our place. So they did whatever they wanted. Right. You know, little uh, do I, they know that that actually helped fuel uh, future movements. Well, yeah, I, anger and resentment or righteous anger about those kinds of depictions uh, obviously are, are going to spur some kind of action. Right, and, right. You know, and, and, and I sometimes I, I watch those films and I sometimes think about, um, you know, like some of the, the actors, you know, the black actors in those films, and what they, what they felt like, you know, when they were forced to say the line that they had to say and and you know what they thought after the scene was over with or the, well, you, you know, know Hattie McDaniel actually oh yes ah, uh-huh. and she said it was just to make a buck right. she was one of the highest paid actresses and she did it because she needed you know her bills paid so she would play the maid I forgot um, the actor's name who played uh, the laziest black man but uh, it was the way he spoke and the way he was so slow in doing things. And then when you see him in real life, he said it was all about the money. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was either not work and starve or, or take these roles. Yeah. And, you know, you got to face it. 
you still almost see that in some films today. Some people, some of these movies are so bad, you know they're career killers. But the the people take it out, take it at the time because, hey, that's six weeks of them not working as a waiter. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The system imposed these restrictions. And if you were going to live and survive and make a living, you had to acquiesce or or get along you know and you know just to to get along in a way you, you had to be clever to survive back in those days oh uh, for sure i don't know if you two are familiar with uh, a man named sam joiner the name sounds, is yeah that sounds familiar all right well well, well sam he was a, a black cartoonist from back in those same times and great great artwork He's great artwork. I want you guys to look him up. Words, mm-hmm. but um, his was sort of uh, the story. He could not sell any work on his own merit. Uh, editors take a look at him, and they wouldn't buy his work because he was black. Mm. What he had to do was actually get a white friend to take his portfolio around, mm. and he actually sold cartoons but only through this white fellow. So, I mean, and and when he told me the stories, he said he wasn't bitter about it, wasn't bitter about the experiences. It's what he had to do to follow his art. Yeah, yeah, you know, speaking on that, what you had to do kind of idea, and that's one of the reasons, that's one of the things that keeps me out there because I feel like, you know what, I can. I, I can do this. I, I'm a black cartoonist that can put his work out on, online. And from coming up in a time without internet and then seeing what's possible now and just understanding that, hey, you know, there are a lot of people before me that, that could not, and, and now I can. And so this gives me a chance and an opportunity to do this. I mean, how blessed am I to be in a time where where it's relatively simple to put your work online. I gotta, I gotta do it. Yeah. In that sense, you know, it is a different era and, and thank goodness for that. And, uh, you know, thank goodness for, for the internet, but we still have, we still have a ways to go. Yeah, uh, but true. yeah, you've got your strip out there. Rob Armstrong's got his strip out there and in the newspapers and Tahid, Tahid Bondia has, has a, his strip out there and a big audience and um the diversity of voices and as ray pointed out too you know the voices of women that were on her dale messick was you know had to her name had to be dale you know i'm not actually sure what her original name was this is not to say that there weren't african-american cartoonists and there weren't female cartoonists working throughout the century of of the history of cartooning in the united states they were but they just didn't have outlets right that's right that was the only difference that they their voices just weren't heard they just weren't there they just weren't heard in mass they probably did things for say the churches or or festival events things like that but Mm. um it, it must have been a hard, a hard way to survive. So it, it's just for the love of the art, nothing more. Right. True. Well, the story of George Harriman, right, is is another story where where Harriman, uh, his entire adult life as a newspaper cartoonist, he passed for white. 
and right. uh, uh, because he was of mixed heritage and and came from New Orleans. Um, but he was a black cartoonist and the greatest cartoonist of uh, up until Charles Schultz. And we can have that debate as to whether Harriman or Schultz is a greater cartoonist. They're two distinct cartoonists. It's like apples and oranges, really. Yeah, that's right. true. Two different kinds yeah. of comic strip. But, I mean, we're talking about one of the founding iconic fathers of the comic strip and and uh, one of the greatest. And he's an African-American and he is... Also, he also had to struggle and, and camouflage himself in his life. Um, yeah, I actually read that he he wore his hat down uh, to to camouflage his hair. Yeah, uh, he okay. never let people see his curly hair. That's right. That's right. You know, um, the book uh, that's out about Harriman is really terrific. Um, I'm trying to, off the top of my head, remember the the title of it now. It's uh, it's sitting on it's my. It's called Crazy. Yeah, Crazy. It's on my nightstand, and and Michael Tisserand, I think, was the. That's it. Right. The author. He's a interesting uh, writer. He's a, a historian of of New Orleans, I think, primarily, and he wrote this book, and he found all kinds of information by going back to New Orleans looking at records and finding out uh, about Harriman's heritage and um, the neighborhood that he grew up in and all of that. And uh, it's really filled with all kinds of incredible detail about, you know, black life in New Orleans in the early 20th century and late 19th century. It's really a great book. I read the book and um, it, it goes a lot deeper than I had expected it. I already knew a lot about George, but this man really opened my eyes to a lot more. And, and that's the bad part, because we all are, are very deep as content uh, providers. We're, we're all very deep, but I mean, most of the people don't know us. They don't know what sort of life we had to go through to put this stuff out. You know, it's not always such a, a happy-go-lucky life. There's a lot to put up with. Yes. Well, one of the things I loved about that book and the discussion of Harriman was that he began to look at the comics, you know, from the point of view of race and, you know, all of these subtle jokes and and um, ideas about race, about black and white and and were being played out in Crazy Cat unbeknownst really to the audience until Tisserand really wrote this book. I mean, the black community reading the strip would be aware of these things, but the white community had really no idea. Right. Right. Was talking about. Think about the relationship of, of it the mouse Mm -hmm. and officer pup. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Now, who do you think it was representing? Remember, he he got his behind kicked by the <laughs> cop all the time. He sure did. Yep. Yes. So yeah, who do you think he's representing? Black well, folk. That's <laughs> it. That's it. And you know, it's interesting. We're talking about you know 1910, 1912, 1914. You know, and and what we're talking about in regard to the relationship between the black community and the the police officers. Uh, you know, it, it's it hasn't changed. It's the right. same. Right. That's the sad part. Well, and I think that's why people, when they talk about defund the police and, and we start having this conversation, the reason is, is because, you know, the idea is 
the system was put in place to to do what it's doing to black people uh, right from the beginning that it it was built into the structure and that somehow then you'd have to take it apart right at the roots and and if you're going to have law enforcement, you have to reconfigure and reconsider what that idea is and what it's about. Because what oh, yeah. right now was built to oppress black people. Yep, and that's true. You know, I hope that uh, that whatever with still with everything going on here, that you know, people understand that they can do whatever they can to help make change. And you know, like it's it can be stressful for people if they feel like, well, I'm not doing enough or I don't feel comfortable going out and protesting or doing that sort of thing. But all of us can do something to to help create change. And even if it's comics and, and comic strips and, and all of that. But yeah, I hope that we have more people kind of understanding that and, and being a part of it. And that sums it up in a nutshell. Just what he said. That's it. I... I can't agree more and actually Khalid I'm so glad you said that because if we're going to wrap this up I think you know wrapping it up on a positive note is really important and and because you can look at what's happened and uh, depending on what media source people are listening to it can be characterized positively or negatively but let's look at it from the pot you know the the positive, and I see it as is completely positive. The whole other shit about the looters and all that kind of stuff, those are we all know what that's about. But the well, protest yeah. the protesting and and you know the the action in the streets to make for change is is the first step towards something very positive. And change is what we've gotta see happen. And so we all have to work some way or another towards change. And, and, you know, this goes f- for the white community even, you know, more because those are the people who have to change. Right, right, yeah. And, yes. and yeah. it's, a, so how do we, we do that? What are some of the steps that we can do, we can, we can take to, you know, make sure that change is something that's going to happen this time? Yeah, but it can be in your own way and what you are and can and, a- and what you are able to do. And that's, that's what's important to remember. So if you're if you're uh, an artist, you can you can put your art out there for change. You can you can make visuals that that work towards change. You can write if you're a writer. If you're a musician, you make music. If you are uh, if you've got the wherewithal, the means, you can contribute money mm-hmm. to organizations for change, like the NAACP or the ACLU, or you know organizations that are working towards change. Black Lives Matter. Um, a number of different organizations out there that will help move this forward, right? Um, so, like you're saying, it's all in what you're capable of and what you are comfortable of with. But sometimes, too, we have to step out of our comfort zone. That's for sure. Yes, it, it, it will always be a continuing thing. Uh, there will be change, no doubt, and we may not live to see this change, but it will always be going on. Uh, as we are living nowadays, uh, we it's our responsibility, our obligation to be part of those people who do enact the change. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I think we couldn't end on, I think, a better sentiment uh, than that, Ray. Uh, I just think yeah. that that was so beautifully said, both of you. Yeah. 
Thanks. And it's it's been just so great to talk with you both uh, today. I mean, a, a really meaningful experience for me. And anytime I get to, uh, Khalid, it's great to connect with you in, in this way. And we're going to connect again real soon. That's and right. I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Um, but uh, Ray, I just want to say, I, I just, I, I, I'm so happy to have had you on the show again. And I hope that we can do this on a regular basis because. Oh, this is great. No problem. No problem. Yeah. This, this has been wonderful. Uh, getting to meet Khalid, you know. I, I had never thought uh, I would meet this guy. Well right. aware of his work, but I've never I've never heard him. So, yeah, and this is a dream come true for me. It's just kind of like <laughs> I can't even believe that I'm that I'm here right now. And so it's just yeah. I mean, thank you, Jeff, uh, for sure, and for for listening to us and giving us the time to kind of talk about our experiences here. Yeah, it's it's been kind of yeah. It's been a dream come true. It's been yeah. It's it's been magnificent. Thank you. Well, it's just been such a pleasure, and um, and also just so nice to to have this ability to come together. You know, we're kind of blessed that we have this opportunity because I don't think we would have had a chance to do this in, in any other forum. You know, I mean, um, okay. you know, on radio or television back in the day, I don't think we would have <laughs> had a chance to to do this, but we can do it here. Yeah, it's possible now. Yeah. Yes. Basically, we would have had to travel. Yeah. Like, at least right. two of us would have had to travel. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And so we can do it here from our homes in lockdown during COVID, <laughs> you know. And anyway, so um, I guess then we this is a great note to wrap it up on. And I, again, thank you both so much. And uh, yeah. and, you know, you sure you can't tell me what's going to happen to Mrs. Nelson? <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. I'm gonna we have want to a scoop. It. We want that scoop. <laughs> I'm gonna have surprise. to Okay, I'm gonna have to wait to find out. Okay. Yeah, I'd prefer the surprise myself. I just, I wanna, <laughs> I wanna see it when it happens. Tell you what, you, you guys uh, get in touch with me when you do find out. Okay, okay. <laughs> you got it. Absolutely. All right, fellas. Uh, thank you so much. All right, thank thanks, you so much. It's been great talking to both to you. of you. Well, that does it. I want to uh, thank Khalid and Ray for such a fascinating discussion that touched so many topics across the last couple of hours. I hope you enjoyed it uh, and found it as interesting as I did. It was a great experience to talk to them both. And I'm going to have to do uh, this kind of thing again where we have more than one person on board at a time. It was it was a really great experience. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again, Ray. Thank you, Khalid. Uh, I I really, this was just great. And uh, you can find Khalid's work, Little Fried Chicken and Sushi, at gocomics.com. Just look it up by the title, Little Fried Chicken and Sushi. Or better yet, you can even go to Khalid's website, and that's friedchickenandsushi.com. And there you can not only read the strips and the archive, but you can also read Khalid's blog, which he keeps up with on a pretty regular basis. And of course, Curtis can be found at comicskingdom.com, as well as in your local newspaper. And if they don't have Curtis, well, you give them what for. Give them a call and tell them they don't know what they're missing. Well, that'll do it. We have... uh, I've postponed it long enough. John Rose of Snuffy Smith and Barney Google is going to be on board next time. I promise. I've delayed it long enough. 
I'm sorry for putting, I know if you were looking forward to that episode, I'm sorry it's been delayed by a week, but uh, I did feel like we needed to get this out and on uh, on the, as, it, as it's the airwaves such as it is, uh, for you to listen to as soon as possible, given the uh, times we live in. But having said that, John Rose is up next week. Hey, follow me on Instagram at Grogan Jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. And and if you are so inclined and of the means, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Anything you can contribute to the support of this podcast is greatly appreciated. And until next time, as always, be well, be safe. Be happy and healthy, and thanks for listening.